But then, then I think there's an extent to when you're younger that travel can imbue you with a sense of status, that if nothing else, you've been to interesting places and had interesting experiences and maybe even brought back interesting souvenirs that can speak to having lived, you know? And yeah. so even though I didn't get the tattoo with a mind to it being a souvenir, that's sort of what it is. And I have scars too. I, you know, um, I cut my head open when I was five. Um, I don't know if you and I have talked about this before. Like I was having a beer drinking contest with my cousin Clint. At five? Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, comedian Ari Shafir comes back on the show to talk about travel with me. Specifically, we talk about the curious role souvenirs play in travel in light of my new book about souvenirs. But in keeping with all of my conversations with Ari, be it from my podcast or his, we cover all kinds of subject matter along the way, including abandoned amusement parks, cruise ship deaths, magic mushrooms, of course, our mutual tendency to anthropomorphize rocks, and the dumb shit we did as young men. This episode actually plays out in three parts. First, Ari and I talk at length about travel and the psychology of travel souvenirs. Then Ari goes off to fetch some of his prized travel souvenirs, and I read the introduction chapter from my book. And then in the final segment, Ari shares the story of five different souvenirs from around the world and how they call forth powerful memories of travel, companionship, and lived experience. Now, last time I talked to Ari, we were driving around Los Angeles in a pickup truck. This time, we're hanging out in an apartment in the East Village of Manhattan. Let's listen in. So we're sitting in Manhattan, Ari's playing with some, like, 2007 era flip phone. It's a new one. Is it a new it's one? It's a flip phone, but it's a new one. I was, I got stuck in, uh, I got stuck in, um, in Seattle, and I was like, the phone I was using just was sending me blank texts. Okay. The, the alias too. Oh, I think we were communicating during that time. Wait, really? But I was like, I didn't get anything. What did you say? Well, uh, Half text too. I asked you some questions, and then you like gave me this. 40 word reply and then sort of a celebratory I did this on a T9 that's right when I got this yeah. new phone yeah. yeah T9 is fucking this shit I never used it back then because I just like I just don't make sense you're not guessing right right but this one's great and so it's it's still a part of your um, your overall agenda to not be reachable not, not to be reachable but just not to, to be out of like constant pull of social media and email and stuff yeah, no, it's it's kind of terrible. Yeah. So where have you been? You you've been on tour. Yeah, I just went. I, I did a I did um, as I'm getting a little more popular, I'm able to like schedule my stuff the right way. So before I would get like an offer for wherever Vancouver, and I'm like, cool, I'll take it or don't take it, you know. But now it's like, no, hold that until. So I held Salt Lake City, Denver, and Vancouver until the winter, so I could go skiing. Oh, nice. Yeah. No, I saw like those pictures on Instagram. Oh, yeah. You're like wearing 80s neon green <laughs> yeah, shit. Yeah, Tipsy outfit, yeah. Right. It was great. But yeah, I just went for like a month, and then I had a, my friend open for me from LA who also skied. So we just okay. did like six full days in, around Salt Lake, nice. Park City, and Alta Brighton. Um, it made it a lot easier. I don't know how you were on the road when you're working, like promoting or something. It's like less enjoyable than traveling. Oh, yeah. You know? Except it's a little bit more, well, yeah, your way of being in the world is different. I mean, you're a performer, and so book tours are my chance to perform and be very public and meet my readers in person. Yeah. Uh, and so that's nice, but that's exhausting, that's cool. too. Oh, like, yeah. So mixing it up. Um, How often do you get this? 
where somebody goes, hey man, nice to meet you. You know, I read your book when I was in this, like they just tell you their experience with your, with how they took you in. My friend oh, and I. Oh, oh, it happens all the time. Yeah. It, in fact, a guy interviewed me on this couch um, like a few days ago. It's pretty much the same story as yours, is that he was already traveling and then, then he somehow got vagabonding. It's like, oh, okay, well oh, this really? sort of articulates what yeah, I, yeah, the experience what, what already going of, through. What was sort of vaguely, what I sort of vague, what was vaguely felt has been articulated. Not have been out on the road. Yeah, it just gets tiring after a while. Like I get it, but like I've heard this story fifty times, a hundred times. Right. You know. Yeah. No, but I, it, it's good. It's one of those things where, again, you're you're a performance oriented person. Where as I go on book tours or do events, like a few book tours every few years, events every few months. And so then I get to hear it in person, you know. Yeah. Um, and so it's nice. Like a lot of people write books, and then they they sell well, but people don't come and say it changed my life type stuff. That is pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, that part's pretty cool. I've yeah. get I've been getting a lot of with your podcast, with the Henry Rollins podcast, and I did one with uh, I forget this other guy's name now, uh, who's traveling too for a while and blogging about it. But like, people have been like, hey, I'm going. Like, they'll see me at shows. Like, I'm going to Indonesia just so you know. Like, you got me going. I'm going to France for four months. I'm yeah. about to leave. You know. That's great. Well, I told you, um, I think I sent you a picture from Hilo. I met some Ari Shafir fans oh, yeah. who, yeah, who yeah, took yeah, me out yeah. for a drink. How was that? It was great. It was great. They were, they were young, just, just excited. It, it was a couple they'd met on Tinder and, uh-huh. and they had a, a third guy. I can't remember their names right now. So if you guys are listening, uh, thanks for hanging out in Hilo. Were but, they from Hawaii or have they moved there or gone no, there? I think they're from California or something. Yeah, he's um, going to play pool and drink beer and he shot shit. And I hear from Ari fans a lot. But yeah. this is the first time I've really? actually met them. Yeah, no, That's well, I was cool. giving you a hard time because, like, you have become a big influence on my audience now. You brought me a lot of people who may That's not good. have previously found me. And the other one is Tim Ferriss, right? So yeah. Tim Ferriss picks up the business section of the bookstore people and sends them to the travel section. And I'm not sure about you. So I was giving you a hard time about how, like, the Tim Ferriss fans will say, oh, hey, I'm starting a new business. I want to retire when I'm 35. I have all these income streams. And the Ari fans will say, yeah, I haven't read a book in 10 years, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but I read yours and it was great. Yeah. <laughs> I, get, I feel like my fans are like uh, revolutionaries, but in their in, in own individual way. But they're like, either we got to violently overthrow the government or half of them are like, ah, fuck the whole system. Let's just travel or like whatever it is. But they're like done with the system. They're super nice, actually. And, and like really enthusiastic. Lucky. So um, it's been fun to hear from them. And at some point, uh, we could we should talk about souvenirs because this is sort of my souvenir oh, yeah, yeah, tie-in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we don't have to talk about it now because I think sometimes if you just talk about souvenirs in the rarefied sense, then it's just like technical. So actually, let's talk about where we've been recently and then maybe we can work in souvenirs. I don't think I got any. I got a souvenir from my mom in Hawaii. Really? Did you get any souvenirs when you were? I did. I, me and uh, my friend Ryan O'Neill, we were, we were skiing. and He's better than me, so he kind of really pushed me to like but not crazy better than me, just a little bit. How long have you been skiing? Like- I started when I was like like young, young, like okay. a toddler, okay. pretty much. And then I stopped for about 15 years. Okay. And then picked it up again, like on a hill in Edmonton, like a two-minute run in Edmonton. And then I was going to some festival in Switzerland. My brother lives near there. Okay. And he was like, let's go to the ski, the Alps. And I was like, yeah, oh yeah, of course. Why didn't I think of that? So I just stayed longer. And then I was just back in. Nice. Um, yeah, broke my ankle two years ago. Didn't ski last year because I was in warm climate. You broke your ankle skiing? Yeah, in Whistler, outside Vancouver. See, um, that's why I didn't ski when I was young. I was, I was on the, the track team, and coaches tell you not to ski. Oh, really? I lived in Oregon, you know, Mount Hood. Oh, yeah. And all the snowboarding and stuff. 
But yeah, so I've been cross-country skiing before, but never downhill skiing. Yeah, any coach doesn't want you to do any other sport. Yeah. You know, it's like all these track guys are like, don't play basketball, all these whatever guys are like, don't do this. Correct. Yeah. They're like, if you're going to injure it, do it for me. That's how, that's how it worked. Actually, I, had to, I was into rock climbing at the time, and I sort of had to surreptitiously go rock climbing. Really? But I think rock yeah. climbing is more, you're a little bit more in control unless you're really, like, do a bad lead fall or something. Dude, my friend um, Shane Moss shattered his ankle out by himself in Utah, like, way out by himself, and had to, like, he laid there for, like, an hour, which is a shattered ankle from a, from a long jump down, and then, like, had to like crawl for five hours to Jesus. get back to wherever he was going to where he could like get the safety. God. Yeah, they had to like rebuild his leg. <laughs> but I always go by myself too and it's like, I'll be fine. That's a, that's a memorable day. Aren't there certain times where you're like going th- like a, on a thin, like, you know, you got to like put your toes and like kind of like hold on to the mountain as you get around this thing where you're like, if I fall, like no one's going to find me here. <laughs> like this is, this is the end of me. I actually, in, in Hawaii recently, um, I just spent a lot of time hiking. Like yeah. I was, I, I was. I saw those pictures are great. Yeah, yeah. Like I, like um, I spent a month in in Waikiki, basically just riding. I had an apartment, and so I was working. I'd go exercise every day, and then I spent three weeks just waking up and then going. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna hike 14 miles to see a lava flow. I'm gonna hike eight miles on this famous trail. You mm-hmm. know, I'm gonna do this this hardcore wow. three mile trail, and it doesn't sound very long, but you're like climbing through tangles of trees and like jumping on rocks the whole time. And so it was very much, and I had some moments like that because I was hiking alone. Like I, I found that hiking is one thing that I'm good at. And when I go alone, like I, I'm just always passing people on the trail. I like to go oh, steady. Really? Mm-hmm. And like that day that I hiked 14 miles, I think I, I only rested when I got to the lava. Like I'm a very steady hiker. Um, but I had moments like that where basically, okay, I'm, I'm the first hiker on this trail. The sun just came up. If I fall in the, the Pacific, nobody's going to find me uh, down there. Yeah. yeah. We took a cruise for, for stand-up. It was just cruise. The Impractical Jokers had a cruise, and they had, like, one of the guys sells a comic, so he brings, like, good comics just to hang out and also do shows. But Like a comedy cruise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was pretty weird and lame. I told you about this a little bit with the amount of food and shit. But, like, uh, we were asking the the captains and whoever we talked to, like, do people ever fall over? Like, we just got really dark. And he was like, yeah, you're dead. Unless you yeah. get found in the first 30 seconds, you're, you're gone. At yeah. night, zero chance. You're gone. Yeah. 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 Jesus. Have you been in a situation like that before? Like, like where... I've gotten scared of it, but it's never happened where it's like, huh, sun's starting to go down. I wonder how many hours of sunlight I have left. What, out hiking someplace? Or yeah, something? or something like that. Or just like lost or like... Or even like, uh, like Joshua Tree or where it gets like super hot where you're like, I can't find my way back. And then, like, sun's going to come up, and it's going to be 100. Yeah. And we don't really have water. Like, we got to start finding our way back here. But that it's never really even comes to, like, where you're starting to get parched and somebody pulls over and finds you. It's never like that. Right. Um, I wonder if somebody would, if you're on the side of the road in, like, Death Valley or something. I wonder if you're, like, uh, like that, if somebody would, like, just pass by or, like, get in the car. That would be an help. interesting experiment. Yeah, to act that way. Yeah, to act that way and see if anybody notices. Yeah, or if they would just leave you to your death. Like, I don't take hitchhikers. Right, yeah. Yeah. No, that's weird. I, that, that happened to me once in the Libyan desert um, in, by the Sudanese border in Egypt. Well, I, just, I wrote a story about this. It's in my second book, Marco Polo Didn't Go There. But I was like, I, want, I just wanted to hike into the dunes. I wanted to feel, like, isolated. 
And like this German guy was with me for a day and then I hiked another day by myself. And then I had this water and then like I threw my pack down and sat on it or like leaned against it and broke my water. Yeah. And so, you know, I was sort of pissed. I was dumping the rest of it out. I just forgot that I was in the desert (laughs) desert (laughs) water. Yeah. So I I sort of, I, I basically night hiked to the nearest road. Like there's this paved road that goes to the Sudanese border. And so I just hiked due Let's see, I always get turned around in, in Egypt, so I think it was east. I, I just hiked due east all night and, and then hitchhiked home. And you got to the road, and you're like, someone got to the road, here. yeah. And then there's truckers, and you know, wow. I'm obviously not Egyptian, and wow. so my friend freaked out on mushrooms in Malibu Creek State Park. We're all on mushrooms, they just kind of freaked out. And um, he said he's not good around campsites, but like, then he called and he was we're like, Where are you? We'll get you. And he goes, I'm, I'm a McDonald's. I was like, Where? We're in a <laughs> national park, How'd you? and he just walked to the exit, then like. Flagged on a cop, <laughs> all jacked out. I was like, I need to get out of here. I need to go somewhere. And they're like, all right, get in. We'll drive you. And they just drove to McDonald's. Alternately, he was like, screams like, stop looking at me to the people at McDonald's. And then getting back on the phone with us. <laughs> yeah, so, as long as you get to a road, someone will pass. <laughs> so when I have my shroom experience, which I haven't yet, I need to worry about like. So, no, you don't have to worry about it. Here's the bottom line. You got to read that, that article I wrote about it. Um, I think I read it before I interviewed you last okay. time. I'm about to return to it. Nothing bad will happen to you. So even my buddy who hitchhiked away and with a cop just right. ended up at McDonald's. Like right. in the end, it was fine. He might have not have eaten the healthiest, but that's about the worst that happened to him. Right. Yeah. No matter what, it'll protect you. <laughs> as weird as yeah. that sounds. No, um, I won't give any details away on this particular podcast. Yeah, but I've set sure. it. I've set it up. I've set my shroom initiation in such a way that I, I think it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. You set it up right, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, but reading this book, you're starting to. It reminded me of like a lot of shit. Okay, yeah. So tell me, I guess I should probably be promoting my book on this podcast. Yeah. So uh, how far into it are you? I got, I'm about two and a half chapter introduction, then maybe two in. And you said it gave you some associations and memories and stuff. So. Yeah. Well, so like even on this trip, so we, me and Ryan are like, went to this hike on in Snow Basin. Um, which is a cool hill in the, in the north of Salt Lake. And then there's like, um, you have to take your skis off and walk up to get over this ridge. And then like, you can like ski the kind of cross country for a little bit, then ski down, but you have to hike up. And I had never done that before. And um, we get to the top, we're just looking down. It's steep as shit. And then there's just like a little rock there. And I was like, I'm getting this. It just felt like I'm on top of the world, you know? Hmm. You could see everything. I think maybe you could see, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you could see the Salt Lake on the other side, like way far away. But it was just like so beautiful and stuff. And I just, I like that idea. I didn't know it was a thing of like getting a piece of the natural surroundings as a memento. Sure. Well, why that rock? Were there... It was small. Okay. And it was on like a big giant thing. So not much was sticking out from the snow. Uh-huh. And it was just like a stone, like, like that size, like, you know, right. one inch by one inch-ish. Size of a quarter or something. Yeah. And it was just like... So what did you do with it? Is put it in on... my pocket and brought it home. Okay, and is it like in a, enshrined someplace? Or? No, I have all these uh, stones and like different things I've realized that I've just put up on a, on a shelf. And then sometimes I'm like, oh, which one was which here? Oh, no, I have the exact thing, the exact same thing. Like, And they're from all over the world. It's interesting. Yeah. A, a geologist would, could probably come and, and see how anomalous it is. But yeah, I have a pile of rocks and I've forgotten like where all of them yeah. are from. I think one is from the Falkland Islands, you know, so they're from... Again, you, you pick them up and, and you, you have this moment and you want to keep them. And then rocks in particular really blend together. Yeah. 
Oh, they really do. Yeah. Some of them also like, it's just a question of like picking up and just having it and just like holding it. It's like cool stone. You just play with it for a while, even for like an hour or a day or two and then like drop it off. Well, I think maybe it's like a ritual of paying attention. You know, like you're, you're at a place and it maybe it feels like, you know, it's beautiful and you're not going to be here again. Yeah. And then, so even if it's going to get mixed, even if you're going to throw it away again, or even if it's going to get mixed up with all these other rocks on your shelf at home, it's sort of a way of sort of reminding yourself how awesome mm -hmm. a, a given experience is. Yeah. Also, when you're traveling for a long time, um, your the room you have is very limited. Right. So a small, yeah. a pebble or a stone right. like that is, is way better than a mask like you get where it's right. like, you're fucked. Like, guess what? You got to lose your sweatshirt now to make respect yeah. room for that. You can't do it all. I think I mailed a lot of those masks to my parents yeah. back in the day. Just like, like just get rid of them that way. couldn't be carrying mm -hmm. them all the time. I mean, do you buy uh, souvenirs when you travel too? I fucked up early on. I did six countries in four months and it was like early on I bought a couple things. But like, you're going to have to go with that. I was like, ah, oh, fuck, you're right. And right. so I just went to the post office in Myanmar um, and then mailed back this like Chinlun ball and like something else. Just mailed it back to myself and with like three month delivery time. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah. And then from then on, I was like, I'm not getting anything until I'm about to leave. Right. Except little stones. Right. right. I think oh. like strategically too, like if you're buying souvenirs, if you get excited about souvenirs when you're first there, then you'll buy, you'll pay it too much. And it's the same shit that's every place else. Right? Yeah, exactly. Because you're like, oh, I don't know if I'll ever come across this. It's like house shopping. Like, don't, it's not, you didn't get fine randomly the best deal yeah. on your very first look. No way. And then plus places they sell, I mean, this, this is in the book, they sell the same stuff everywhere. So everywhere. Like, yeah. It's variations of the same thing. And usually it's the stuff that, that tourists want, think they want, you know. It's weird too. Sometimes the, it feels like the country gives the people the version of what, so if I'm the country, if I'm France, I'm giving these tourists the version of what I think these tourists think France is. Yeah. So it's not even like, hey, here's what you should like about our place. It's like, what do I think you like about our place? And well, then I'll do something for that. There's a chicken and an egg thing going on here because mm -hmm. a lot of the people I interviewed, um, and actually there's a later chapter in the book which is about authenticity, which deals with that exactly, is that well, what does it mean? Like the reason that they sell masks now in places that don't traditionally have mask dances is because tourists think masky stuff makes them feel more foreign, right? Uh -huh. um, right? But then also, I think what happens is is uh, tourists come and, and they they buy souvenirs out of the feeling, you know, and so they want that Eiffel Tower keychain, they want a mask because it seems exotic, even though you know it, their actual experience might have something might be completely different. And so there's this idea of oh, right. the country is selling what it thinks tourists want, but the reason it's selling that is because that's what tourists buy, right? Um, so so it's it's like the law of the market. Yeah, that's what people bemoan all the bodegas here that start carrying high-end stuff and, 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 and like biscuits from the UK. Right. And, and the people that were indigenous, not indigenous, but you know, the people who lived here for a while, it's like, right. what is this? I'm not, I'm not into that. We're all Dominican. Like, what is that? And it's like... They wouldn't sell it if it didn't sell. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's only because people come in and it was like, oh, I want those more and more as it gets gentrified. It's, they'll sell what they can sell. It's, they won't sell what won't sell. That's an interesting parallel. Gentrification and souvenirs. Because yeah. souvenirs are really, it's an outsider's market. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's um, I think a lot of travelers want to buy things that are 
emblematic of the place and the culture, but they also don't have time to just hang out for a while and really know the culture. Yeah. Uh, and that's that was, why stones work well because they're super authentic. Yeah. No. You know? Actually, I didn't even think of that in the book in terms of uh, authenticity, but of course, yeah, a rock yeah. from the ground is is unavoidably authentic. Yeah. Or like what you want is like a, a whittling from some guy in like you know. Western Tennessee, and just like, yeah. oh, I'll take that. But like, he was like, all right, you know, I just have a collection of these over my fireplace. And you're like, yeah, right. I would love one of those, <laughs> you know? But then yeah. they give you that version of it, and they're all made in Indonesia. Yeah, no, well, that, that's one thing is that um, they're made in Indonesia or China. Yeah. Like, like everything, and all the, all the souvenirs in Australia, most of them are made in Indonesia and China. They, they, they can even undersell the Aboriginal artists because, like, Aboriginal artists have special painting styles and uh, stuff. Yeah. And then suddenly, like Vietnamese, Chinese, Indonesian people are mass producing those in a way that the, and underselling uh, the Aboriginal artists. When you were talking about carvings, um, a friend of mine who read my book said that she went like up into the Inuit part of Canada and she bought a carving from, an owl carving from an Inuit artist. And um, she sort of wanted to feel authentic about it. And so she's trying to get a story like, who are you? Why did you carve this? Oh, yeah. And he's that. basically he's like, Okay, like he wouldn't answer, and finally he's like, "Dude, there's no trees here. There's no owls here. I carve these because people buy them." And so I think that happens again and again. Where, um, and again, I use in the book I use the example of masks. Where I, when I first started traveling, I kept buying these masks. And I didn't know why. I wasn't going to dance drama performances. Yeah. Um, and then I think the oh, more yeah. experienced I got as a traveler, the more I realized that it. I was sort of buying the mask because it made me feel travelly. You know, it made it, that was sort of somehow a signifier of, of an authentic place. And once I had traveled slow long enough, I realized that those didn't really have a re correlation to my travel experiences. Yeah, like nothing to do with it. It's, it wasn't yeah. your thing. Even if like, I was thinking this, like if you go to, I don't know, Paris, and some people are like, you got to go to the Louvre, you know. But like, what if you're not into yeah. art, then why would you go there? There's probably good hikes you can go on if you're into that. So oh, it's, yeah. like, it's like almost like you should be getting a memento of your experience there and not just like, what you're supposed to get. I think that that happens um, the longer you travel, right? That you that you relax a little bit. Oh, you right. know? Like I, I think, and actually, the social scientists I studied bore this out: is that first-time travelers are just excited and they, they want to shop immediately and they want to buy this stuff that mm -hmm. proves that they've been there. And they then they want to they, they take the prescriptive advice to go to the Louvre and then they get lost and freaked out, so they take the, a selfie in front of the Mona Lisa in front of a bunch of other people. Yeah. And then as you travel more, and I'm curious to know what you think about this, because it feels like you've you sort of reached a new plateau of travel in the mm -hmm. last year. Um, and I'm sure there's, a, there's exceptions, but on your first trip, you buy the keychain, and it's actually awesome because it's your first trip. But on your 10th trip, you're not going to the Louvre anymore. Like, I don't go to the Louvre anymore because I sort of like the Pompidou better. There are hikes, you know. Yeah, there's you, that too. It's like there's other the shit. There's all this... There's the Bocanese, these little green boxes along the sand in Paris where you can buy these old prints and old magazines and oh, old cool. probably fake Jim Morrison concert posters and stuff. Like it's all, it's yeah. all mixed together. Just like, have you been to Vietnam? Yeah, but not long enough, not wide enough. I, I was there probably pretty briefly in a long time ago, but they, after the Vietnam War, there was a market in like old GI Zippos and ephemera from the war. Oh, cool. But I think that after five years, that stuff was gone. And so I was there 15 years after the war. Was it 15? Gosh, and what they do, reproduce them? Maybe 25 years after. And yeah, they made fake Zippos that, you know, yeah. uh, that, that approximated 
um, life before then. And so the same thing happens in, in Paris, in a place where you can buy actual antique prints from like the, the French version of Life magazine from 1940. Then there's also a Jim Morrison Live in Paris poster, which is obviously fake because it only costs like 10 euros. Yeah, it wouldn't be original. Yeah. There's no way, right? Yeah, not for 10 euros. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Uh, like a thousand. And so that's another thing, too. I'm sure they do that because pe that's what people buy. So. Yeah. It's almost like when I read that thing about like my grandfather sold stones, I sold stones, my dad sold stones. Mm, it's like mm -hmm. as long as people, white people have been coming here, maybe I pushed in white on my own, but like as long as yeah, no, travelers have been yeah. coming here, we've been selling stones. And it's like, it's almost like when the, when the tides change and now there's fish here. So like we fish for, for, for you know, sustenance or, or these these white people come, so we do right. that for sustenance. Right. Yeah, Ari's talking about the early chapter in my book where I'm talking to these people in Namibia, they're the Damra tribesmen, yeah. and they, they live like six hours from the coast in the mountains, but the mountains are where all of these semi-precious stones, you can dig them out of the mountain. And so to get cash, for three generations they've been doing this. They've been digging rocks, polishing them, and selling them on the coast to, to first like German colonists and, and um, Afrikaans travelers, and now just whoever whatever European or, or whatever and tourist Once it becomes coast. a thing of like, oh, when you're there, you got to get a stone, then it's yeah. like all tourism. Yeah. You know, it's, it doesn't become like, hey, these people make really beautiful stones. They're great. Like Shaker um, furniture was okay. among the best furniture made. Right. They all made everything handmade. Uh-huh. And after, they died out, I think, because they wouldn't reproduce. But like... Now it's imitation shaker furniture. Well, even if it was, though, at some point people were like, oh, you got to go get a shaker thing. But it's like, no, right. they got it before because it was quality. And not because right. it was like the thing to get to say you got. Right. You know, it's, I don't know when it would switch over, but definitely when you're recreating GI lighters, you've switched over. For sure. Yeah. And actually, I think some people come because they, I, I touched on this in the book too, that is they want to resell the stones. So it's not really a souvenir. So the right. same white. So that's okay. In one group of white people, somebody might buy rose quartz because they know they can get 10 times the money back home. Uh, and then some people buy it because it's what is for sale on the skeleton coast of Namibia. Yeah. Um, and actually, uh, it's funny because like you, you came on my radar during this trip. Like I was listening to your interview of Rollins during this trip. So, oh wow! But really, when yeah. you were doing research for that thing, or just there? Yeah. Well, I mean, wow, I think when hilarious. I was on your podcast, we talked about this. Yeah, that you were I reading vagabonding that. in Cambodia while I was listening to your interview with Rollins in, <laughs> in Namibia. In Namibia, and you know, I don't think it was the exact day that I went to the coast and talked to these guys. But actually, they invited me. The Tom and Trisman invited me to their village if I had more time. Like I've never seen souvenirs as a way to hang out with people, but. The Tamra tribesmen, and then also the other Namibians I talked to in Swakopmund, they, they all had time, like on a slow souvenir day. They, their English is great. You may, may as well talk to them. And so yeah, they, off season, they're like, we're not in a rush. Yeah, what? totally, totally. And then once the hustle is over, once they realize that, because I think people are in, in, tourists don't have time, right? And so the, the, the tourist vendors know that they have three minutes to make a sale. And once you've been there for 20 minutes, then they realize that, you actually have time and you're a real human being. You know, you're oh, not just a mark. A mark, right. Um, oh, wow, yeah, maybe. So I had some interesting, Trump had just taken office when I was in Namibia. In you're talking about Donald Trump? Donald Trump, okay, yeah. Cool. And so sure. I was talking to them about politics and they all had strong opinions. But it was funny, like some of the, like, you know, Africans that are pro-Obama because Obama has African heritage, mm -hmm. but um, oh, yeah. a couple of them, you know, a couple of Namibians were like, oh yeah, I like Trump. You know, so it was, it was funny just like uh, talking to, Basically, I was there early. What happened is I was going to interview a souvenir vendor in Swakopman. This is before I met the tribes people on the Skeleton Coast. And then he didn't show up because he probably thought I was just a little, another flaky white guy who 
had promised to come. Yeah. Like tourists lie to souvenir vendors all the time. Oh, I'll come to your house for lunch tomorrow, sure. Yeah, yeah. Or, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to wait till the end of the trip and then I'll buy souvenirs. And I think they, the souvenir vendors get burned again and again. So the guy stood me up. But, and so I was hanging out in an empty souvenir market with like 14 vendors. And I think once they realized that I was, um, had nothing better to do than to hang out, and, then, and they're like, well, who's this outsider? Let's talk to him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, then I was sort of uh, like I was an American who had time, which I think is rare that an American just comes and hangs out with souvenir vendors. And so that was fun, actually. And then, then further up the coast, when I was buying the polished rocks, the, the Tamara people invited me to their village. And so funny, funny aside, I, I asked Henry Rollins, I haven't asked him to be on this podcast, but I asked him to be in my travel writer interviewer series because uh -huh. he's sort of a travel writer. You know, like some yeah. of his stuff is about travel. He does a lot of photography too. And so I mentioned that to him, yeah. but I never heard back. Have you been so. talking to him? No, huh? I, never, oh. I, I didn't hear back from him. Oh. But that was like before I had a podcast. Um, this is easier. Yeah. Podcast, it seems like is like I've been interviewing travel writers for 18 years. Every month for 18 years, I've interviewed a different, interviewed a different travel writer. Oh, really? You should do a travel book, by the way. I want to. Yeah, I think it would lend. Yeah, I, I think that a few comedians have done or comedy writers have done travelish type books. Yeah, um, but it, it seems silly for you not to do one. Yeah, yeah, I've got to figure out. The, I'm just going to start anyway. So there's your literary consultation for yeah. today. So one of the things I did in terms of souvenirs too was like, and it's kitschy and lame, but like with size being an issue, was I think I told you this. Where it was like I just tried to get fridge magnets. Okay, that's yeah, that's one oh one level souvenir yeah. stuff. And it would get me moving in that Flanora way, oh, of like oh, it was right. like I got something to do. Is like, well, start looking for that, start looking for that fridge magnet. Magnet, but of like the day. go, go yeah. out, you know. Yeah. Um, and if it's like you know, first few days, like right away, the first country, I think, Myanmar was like, I got it the first like two days. Do they have fridge magnets in Myanmar? They have these markets, but the markets like you picture markets in your head. From faraway places like Morocco, and you picture like you know a, a, a fucking three-fingered monkey, you know paw that's like oh it's so like unique, but it's not that. It's all just manufactured garbage. It's the same as every stall, you know what okay. I mean? It's not okay. this genie bottle that right. you're hoping to find, you know? Right, right. These amazing like out of the way, but those markets really, I found even some of those in like in like Thailand. It's like some small small island, and like you go away, and then all of a sudden it's like oh there's just brooms. These are for the people who need right. goods. That's actually something I talk about in the book too. Is that I, how much time have you spent in India? Zero. Zero. Okay, yeah. you should go to India. Yeah, I know. You get a kick out of that. Um, I was in Calcutta, and there's a market. It's called the used to be called the Hog Market. It's now called the the New Market. And so I went to the market. It's giant. It's like three square blocks, three giant square blocks, um, and then all the all the foreigners are in. Like the little souvenir section, uh -huh. buying all these traditional wares, traditional pots and vases and puppets and stuff. And no Indian people were there. Like the Indian people were buying like plastic toys for their kids. They were buying A cast iron yeah. pots. They uh -huh. were buying flashlights and rubber bath mats and stuff. And so that, that's, that's part of my authenticity chapter in the book is that, you know, those ornate things that all the tourists were buying in the shops where there were no Indian people in... Um, you know, maybe some Indian houses have some of that, but day-to-day -day life is not, you know, they're not front, they're not putting their, cooking their food in these old utensils from a hundred years ago. They're yeah. using the same Chinese-made frying pans that everybody else is using. But see, that would be cool, though. It's like the pan that you use, the cast iron skillet you use, so it's like, oh, I got this in a fucking, you know, in a shop in Calcutta. 
Yeah. It was like we were all going to cook something, and then it was like I was about to go home, so I just brought it with me. Yeah, that'd be a pain in the ass to carry. It would be. That'd be heavy as fuck. But like, yeah. But like those things have stories behind them, and that's all it really comes down to. I feel like it's like the story behind some rock or some whatever. Yeah. You know. Um. Like, how'd you get there? Like, what what brought you even to the area where you could get that? And then it's like, and those are the things too. Like, when you wrote about the uh, that fuse box you found. Okay. Like you yeah. can't impart on people the feeling. I mean, I, I can't say can't. I haven't been able to figure out how to impart yeah. the feeling on people. And you talk about that in vagabonding too. Like, get ready for your friends to be disinterested in what you're talking about. Totally. Um, yeah. You just can't impart that feeling of like being alone and free and like coming across, to making a right instead of a left like you're supposed to. And then like coming over this hill and seeing something open up in front of you and just like, yeah, they just won't get it. Yeah. So it's really just for yourself for a story. Yeah, and I I think sometimes people assume, there's this old idea that souvenirs are like status symbols, like this look where I've been thing you have in your house to impress people. But I really found that was rarely the case, that in in most situations, souvenirs aren't meant to impress people because people don't get it. People don't get it. I feel like you get it, the reason you get it is partially in your head is to impress an abstract person later. Huh. You know, or like your friends at home, and then you just don't bother showing it to them. Well, expand on that a little bit, because I think well, it's that's like a the, true it's like thing. the version of selfies now in Instagram, right. where it's right. like, look where I am, right. you know. Um, but there, it's like it's like I can picture a person in my head, be like, oh, if I tell you know this ex girlfriend or my mom about like where I got this, they're gonna right. be so impre- oh, they're gonna like almost like you taking them there with you. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. Those people serve the moment, even if they don't later yeah exactly see or or care about what you collect Uh you know and i just think that's normal human stuff like you have this web of human relationships that sort of comes with you and then travel you're you sort of feel displaced and you're a little bit insecure because it's a fleeting moment you're not really sure what language is being spoken or what's going on and so souvenirs are sort of a comfort ritual to an extent yeah they remind you of home they remind you of where you're gonna the shelf that you're gonna put that rock on or the person you're gonna show it to a bottle cap from like a beer you had with some, you know, yeah. Chinese guy you met in, in, in Indonesia that you just had a like lost long talk with. Yeah. And you're just kind of yeah. like, I'm putting this in my pocket. And then you're like, I don't know. You just, yeah. You feel like Samantha would have loved to be here. Yeah. I think that's something I, I, I under examine in the book that really I think that sometimes you keep that bottle cap because the night felt special, but oftentimes that bottle cap never makes it home, Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. um, because you, you just wanted to remember it in that night. Like, so there's, there's certain souvenirs, especially pebbles and garbage type stuff, bottle cap type stuff that you keep for a short time because it felt awesome in the moment. Yeah. And then a few days later, it's like, okay, I don't really need to be carrying this bottle. Also, cap then anymore. you like compounded with tons of experiences in a place and you're like, this one isn't the only experience I've had now. Correct. I've yeah. had 40 experiences, right. so it's not like. Oh, all right. This one is not as special, right? You know, I've yeah. dropped stones and picked up better stones. Like I picked right. up a shell <laughs> on, a, on a on a beach in Bali, um, and I was like, "Cool." And then as you travel through Indonesia, you're like, "There's better stones that I found." This yeah. is like a public white beach. Yeah, and and sometimes even the fact, it's 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 another weird psychological thing. When I was wandering the desert before I broke my water bottle in the Libyan desert, I found a bullet in the sand. Like an, like a, it had obviously been oh, really? discharged and a bullet in the sand. And I picked it up and it's like, I'm going to drill a hole in this and wear it around my neck. And the next hour I found like 12 more. <laughs> <laughs> and, you're like, oh. and it's like, okay. 
and, and somehow, you know, the idea that something might be rare or special. And so somehow I read something. I felt chosen when I found the first bullet. And by the time I found the 12th, I didn't care about any of them anymore. Yeah. You know? The Simpsons has this show, uh, I forget which episode it was, but they, they, they were on a farm and they saw a lamb. They're like, aw. And they saw like a, a, a smaller lamb, like an adolescent lamb. And they're like, aw. And then a baby, baby lamb. And it was like, oh, so cute. And then the middle lamb comes back and like, get out of here. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, you're no longer cute. That's funny. I by think, comparison. I think that's a thing. I, I, I think that's a thing. I'll take, sometimes I'll take like um, things of nature and then try to like, I, I give them like life. Uh, there's a, where was this? Maybe either Indonesia or East Timor. But there's a religion, the world's oldest religion. Fuck, it's all about, ah, damn, it's gone from my head. Is it animistic? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And um, so they believe in like, that everything has sort of a soul. You know, uh-huh. it's a being. Rocks do, trees do, humans do. Sort of everything has like a being to it. Right. Um, so I sort of like hold by that a little bit. So like, I imagine like I take a pine cone that I found in Scotland and I just carry it with me. And then I'm in Iceland and I just like drop it off hmm. in the woods there. Hmm. And I imagine like the father, the mother of this pine cone, the tree, going like, "What's my son gonna become?" And it's like, "You're never gonna know. He's gonna see the fucking you know shores of Iceland." Right. You know. And just try to like move it past where it possibly could have gone or a stone, like take it and like you're traveling the world now. That's, that's interesting. Like you almost, you, you anthropomorphize these things. I remember when I was traveling in America, my very first vagabonding trip, I picked up a seashell someplace, uh-huh. South Carolina or something, put it in my backpack, forgot about it. I was backpacking in near the, the Tetons, near Jackson Hole in yeah. Wyoming. I gotta get there. Found that in my backpack and it's like, I'm gonna leave this at the top of a mountain. Yeah. And so I hiked up on a ridge and left this Atlantic seashell in the mountain. And it was just, it amused me in this private way. Like nobody is going to see that and probably nobody will see it at all. Right. But if they did, what are the odds that they go, is this a seashell? What? How? Is that a mollusk common? Yeah. They'll be like, the that means, that means this used to be all underwater. Right. <laughs> We've discovered this artifact. <laughs> Fuck with paleontologists. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but I, again, um, I think that there... And I found this while I was writing the book is that the psychology of things is in a way it's been vibrating in a way that we don't think about. Like, like I had, I played, you played a game with the pine cone from one country to another. I played mm-hmm. it with a seashell years ago. Um, we collect these objects and then, then we throw them away later because they were about the moment more than taking them home. And I think that that is something I discovered while writing the book. Like I, when I walked through my house, um, I found things that I forgot that I had kept, and I forgot why I kept them. Oh, yeah. Um, you lose the whole meaning behind them. Like, what? what was this? It had to have been special. Right, or I find them, and it's like, holy shit, that's that bar of soap from the Chelsea Hotel. And then you remember it. Yeah. Oh. And it's like, and of course, I, I don't keep soap from any other hotels, but Leonard Cohen sang a song about the Chelsea Hotel and has his rock and roll history, so that's the, that's the soap yeah. that I kept. And then there's this boat propeller. There's actually a picture of it in, my, in the book. When I went down the Mekong, one of my greatest adventures either, and I go for months without thinking about that, but I was looking at that while I was researching the book, and it's like, yeah, that was, that was I could have died, you know, that was, that was amazing. And so... Um, it does have that power, too, to take you back to a place. For sure, yeah. And then even souvenirs that I've since lost, like the fuse box, uh, and, and Ari was talking about this, I, I hiked up on a plane crash when I was a teenager, sort of, um, and it seemed so 
hardcore that here was this men had died yeah. three decades before. So I, it was like at a Christian camp, and they, our counselor told us not to take anything, but I snuck out this fuse box because I wanted to show my friends how badass it was. And I showed them, it's like it could have been garbage from anything. You know, yeah, they're it, like, ah. Could have been a, a piece of an air conditioner or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then I felt bad, and I, br I brought it back to, to Colorado years later. You did? Yeah. You threw it back yeah. out there? Yeah, I threw it back out there. That's uh, Actually, I'm giving away all the secrets in the book. Yeah, so so I, I felt so bad about oh, that wow. that I took it back to Colorado because I was a counselor at the same camp. That's where I, that was my big oh. rock climbing phase of my life. Um, but it just felt like I had dishonored the site of the plane crash. Like it didn't belong to me and that somehow it called forth, it, it, it just, it became less meaningful the more I had. I just looked at it and I felt bad about taking this That's cool to put thing. it back. Yeah, yeah. And it, I, it was interesting because it allowed me to go full circle. Um, it gave me a pretext to take my campers back to the plane crash and just sort of quietly replace it. But also it's like, it wasn't of the area. Like it was interesting. An invading, yeah. like not species, but like, you know, right. it wasn't supposed, it was just garbage if somebody threw out the, the fuse box. But one thing, um, like when the timer were selling me the, the polished stones in Namibia, that was at shipwreck sites. Travelers oh, yeah. love ruin porn. They love, they love plane crashes and <laughs> yeah. shipwrecks and, and old Tales of woe buildings, and like, yeah. things that have burned down. Um, uh, yeah, they amusement, really do. Dead amusement parks. In fact, um, I don't, there, you, you probably have a corollary experience, but uh, there's an amusement park that I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, called Joyland. And even in the 80s, it was, it was deteriorating fast. It was one janky amusement park. Yeah. Um, and it finally went out of business about 15 years ago. And it was all, it was picked apart like people. People have we, memories we, there. Yeah, we sort of made fun of it when we went there, but then it became this this icon of childhood. And so people were constantly sneaking and stealing things from the abandoned amusement park. Um, and so I think it's pretty normal. Like you're more you're just as if you find a plane plane crash, you're I think you're more likely to take a little bit of it. Or like if you sneak into an abandoned amusement park, you're more likely to to steal souvenirs from that and then pick up a rock in another situation because somehow it's infused with this energy of human transience, I guess, for lack of a better word. What do you mean? Well, like, these people built this amusement park uh, yeah. and it was going to be... Only because it's going away will they go do that. Otherwise, Correct. they're happy, like, it's covered, it's there. Right. If it's there, if let's say your amusement park was Disney, you right. know, then you're like, it's, it'll always be there. I know where it is. Right. You ever see Harold and Maude? Yeah, yeah. So when Harold makes this, I guess, locket or ring for Maude and... Um, and then she's like, I love it. This is amazing. And then immediately throws it in the lake. And you're like, what? She goes, so I'll always know where it is. And you're like, oh, that's great. Yeah, why well, do take it with you? And like, it's just, it's there. I know where it is now. It's in that lake. That's where that thing you made me was. That's funny. Well, that's another situation of ascribing meaning to objects, right? Uh -huh. you know, gifts, you know. What do you do with, with the stuff you got from your girlfriend when she dumps you, you know? Um, how are you going to? Yeah, what do you do with that? Yeah. Do you hold on to it till after you hate, stop hating her, and when you can finally go back to like, oh, we had some good times. I'm glad I saved this one thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think it's not just souvenirs. I, I concentrate on travel souvenirs in the book, but they're almost a metaphor for all the ways we organize meaning in our lives by saving stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, like guys are famous for keeping clothes too long. You know, you get sentimental about items of clothing, you know. Oh yeah, I've got to go through my closet right now where it's like, what, what do I, why? No, yeah, I have old clothes that are, yeah, that like, my like an old track shirt from college. And You'll never wear. It has paint on it from when I was doing some work some summer and then I took it to 
Myanmar and India, and, and now it's like, I don't know if I can throw this away. It's been through so much, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's weird. You feel bad, to, like you're obligated to it after a while. But like my friend Joe List, the comedian, he got a box of cigars on his wedding from this other guy, Robert Kelly, his comedian. Box of nice cigars. Our fathers, my fathers, I forget what they're called. And he was afterwards, he like gave them out that night. He was like, guys, we're smoking cigars. And later he was like, man, I should have saved those. It was like a wedding mm -hmm. gift. And I was like, but saving for what? It's the perfect time. Right. We all right. smoke those cigars at your Save the box if you want and put change in it. Right. You know what I mean? But like, you also got to use the thing for what it's like made to be used for. Yeah, well, actually, I think that I touch on this at the end of the book, like where I inherited a, an alabaster elephant from my aunt when she died. And I don't know what it meant to her, you know? Yeah. Uh, that forever, she kept that up until she, she died. And it's like, I'm, I couldn't tell you why or where it's from. And so now it reminds me of her. But I think that there's this, these things, they, uh, they convey meaning to ourselves in a way you can't convey to other people. And an example I use in the book is when Neil Armstrong died, they found all this ephemera from the moon landing that he'd kept for himself, like a wrench and a waist tether and stuff like that. Yeah. And oh, wow. now it's just, it's technical equipment from, from, the space, from the moon mission. But to him, he could look at those for all the millions of words written about that, the Apollo 11 or whatever that was. Um, he, those were very personally meaningful things to him. It's like he probably couldn't even articulate why the waist tether and the wrench were yeah, meaningful, yeah. you know, that, but that somehow he remember how he felt when that waist tether was keeping him from floating away or whatever. Yeah, maybe just go like, wow, not for this thing, I'm dead. Right. This thing has saved my life a few times. You know, or whatever it is, I don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I like the way it felt in my hands as I was like, re, you know, re-rolling it or something, like whatever it was. Well, that's the propeller from my Mekong expedition has a bunch of chips in it. It's obviously a broken one. And so it reminds me how we were, we kept buying these cheap aluminum bow propellers instead of steel ones because we were cheap backpackers. Yeah. And finally we got a, a, a propeller that didn't break and that was worth it. Um, but it. But it ties into like your friend with the wedding is that he wants to save something. Like it, it, there's a weird poignance to that. You want to save the cigars, but... Do you want to do you want to fossilize the moment or live the moment? Yeah, exactly. At some point, like what you'll what you'll what you'll fossil what you'll uh, save is the memories of all your friends smoking. He goes, some people didn't even smoke them all the way; they just smoked like a little bit. I was like, <laughs> but if they had a fine cigar, they're not cigar smokers. Right. You gave them the experience of having a fine cigar at your wedding, right. even right. if it's a little bit, or like giving like great scotch to a kid, and he's like, it tastes like paint, but it's like right. that was that was great, man. That was fucking amazing scotch. But you'll know this when you get older, right? You know. Right. But it's like even if they wasted it, they didn't waste it. They were all celebrating your big day. Yeah. Yeah, that's a bigger, you'll take that with you more than like the wrapper of a, or take the smallest amount. Take like the, the, the little like ring around the cigar. Right. Yeah. Take that and put that in a book somewhere. Yeah. You know? And I just wonder if there, there comes a point at which then that becomes less meaningful when you have a thousand of those, right. you know? Um, again, it's, it's almost like souvenir inflation or meaning inflation. You find the 12th bullet and the first one becomes less meaningful. You, yeah, know, you say the same shit everywhere. It really becomes, like those mass produced things. It's like, oh, you guys are fucking us. <laughs> like, what do you mean? The people who want some like legit real souvenir, like this isn't it. This is like what you said, made in Indonesia. This is like, right. this is all, I'm seeing only white faces around me buying the same yeah, stuff. Like, yeah, ugh, yeah. I don't want this anymore. But this is another thing I, t I touch on in the book is that often it's usually about the authenticity of the traveler. Uh -huh. It makes people feel authentic. And then, 
And so the first time traveler, they don't even pay attention to the white faces because they're excited. They're in, yeah. they're in uh, Indonesia, they're in yeah. Paris or whatever. But you come back for the eighth time and you are no longer that person and you're sort of looking at that person and you're impatient, you know, you don't want to be that person and so you're looking for something more authentic. And because you want to be more authentic, you want to be a person who's here for the eighth time mm-hmm. and you want a souvenir that's emblematic of that. But that's, that's you're already hard. Buying the system, yeah. Yeah, that's hard to... It's hard to find. I found too, I just realized this now, but it's like if you buy usable things that also have a story to them, like I was in Iceland, I, I didn't have a, a bathing suit. And okay. My friend was going to take me some like hot springs. So I got a bathing suit, but it was like, well, I'll use this when I go home too. But then when I'm like, if it's at all like, where'd you get a bathing suit? It's like, oh, actually, I got it in Iceland. We used it to, <laughs> but like, I'm just using it as a bathing suit. I'll just go to the pool with it yeah. or wherever. You know what I mean? So I can use it as is, or a sweatshirt or something. But like, where'd you get that? It's like, oh, I bought it off a fucking backpacker I met. He just left the Highlands and didn't need it. So I bought it for two bucks off him and, yeah. and saved it. No, I just completed a life cycle of a bathing suit in Hawaii. Really? Um, a life cycle, Because yeah. when I was in Grenada, like 12 years ago, my luggage hadn't come in. So I bought all this shit. Like, it ended up being in the story I wrote about it. I, I, I didn't have shoes, so I bought like these jellies. Like the only thing big enough for my feet were the, like those plastic sandal things like yeah. the dude wears in the big Lebowski but they had like they were like Rastafarian colors and then I had this swimming suit like this cheap five dollar Grenadian swimming suit which I which I've used forever like I'm more of a hiker than a swimmer and so then you know I'm I'm in Hawaii I'm swimming around I'm with my friend and she's like you know what the hell what is that you're wearing <laughs> this cheap Grenadian swimsuit so um, one day I ceremoniously stuffed into a garbage can on Kauai just because it's like yeah I should buy a better swimming suit but it's nice that this it was probably made in China, but this swimming suit that started in Grenada is now, you know, it started in the Caribbean and now it's somewhere it's, else. It's ending its life in, in uh, the Pacific. Dude, there are all these, um, so I went to this market in Myanmar, like a thrift market, um, like 45 minutes away from us, whatever the closest, like not even big city, there's a small city. Okay, we started a, like a long hike there and we need to close, like it's gonna be cold as fuck. And I was like, oh shit. So we went and, um, there were people there. The clothes were all functional, but some of them were really cool. Like they had like original Guns N' Roses, like tour shirts that some other traveler. And where is this? In Myanmar. Okay. Um, it's it was on the way to Inlay Lake, but it was it was Kalau. So okay. it was like forty five minutes away from Kalau. Okay. And um, and um, you tell people like that's a great shirt. And their only thought is like, oh, good fabric, right? It's pretty thick. Okay. <laughs> and you're like, you guys have no idea. But how did it get there? It was some traveler was like, I need to dump stuff. Right. And they're yeah. just like, all right, here, take it. I'm going, I'm, I'm going to India. It's going to be super hot. I can't use a sweatshirt anymore. Yeah, you that, know? That's another perspective is like the global thing economy. You know, what ends up, what do people bring from home and leave and where do they take home? It's like the anti-souvenir. What do you yeah. dump? What do you, you dump know? somewhere? Yeah. I don't think anybody would have accepted my Grenadian swimsuit. It was pretty right there. But... <laughs> Torn up. You're like, you want this? Like, no. You ever try to get past something on to somebody and they're like, ugh. And you're like, but it has meaning to me. Like, just to you. To me, it's a tattered rag. Right. No, well, that's it. I remember when I was in India specifically, I went up north and um, basically kind Indians were giving me or selling me warm clothes and none of it fit, right? right? So, um yeah, no. I the schlumpiest days of my travel career, those times in Asia, where I just didn't care how I looked. You know, like I was, I was a very pure backpacker back then. I wasn't trying to impress anybody. Um, but yeah, God knows we're 
where all that stuff happened. It's almost like your clothes, if you travel long enough, your clothes become a story in themselves, you know? They, mm -hmm. they sort of tell the story. Like you can look at a shirt or something you bought someplace and it reminds you of 10 things. Yeah, oh, that girlfriend got me that. She said, you're a fucking, outfits are terrible and she helped me right. shop for something interesting. I remember that lady, she was really nice. Yeah, and then it takes you down a road of like other memories too. Yeah. And I think that's a bottom line thing is that souvenirs, they're about the memories. They're, they're not about status, but they're, they're ways to trigger memories and they trigger memories in different ways. And one thing that I really hadn't thought about until we started talking is how many souvenirs serve a very short timeline. The bottle cap that you keep for a week and it's uh -huh. like, oh yeah, that was a fun night, but I'm not carrying this bottle cap anymore. Um, or The stone you kick even for like 10 minutes, you know, when you kick yeah. a rock in front of you and you're yeah. like, that's my rock and you keep fucking trying. If you miss it, you gotta go back for a second right. and kick it. And then it's like, well, it's done now. Yeah. It did its time. You want to be like, shut, nah. It's such a kid thing, you know? Kicking like, rocks kicking the, forward. Kicking the rock up the yeah. trail. But then again, you, you, you anthropomorphize the rock. You know, you're giving that rock a better life than it would have had otherwise. Uh -huh. you know? Yeah, I love doing that. I mean, it's got no real meaning, but like, you just give it meaning. Yeah. This is one of my favorite souvenirs. This is this little scar I got in a, in a hot spring in like northern Iceland. Okay. Just like accidentally like cutting my hand on this like jagged rock and then like bleeding. And I was like, oh, fuck. And then it just it became a, a walking souvenir, I guess. Yeah. No, for like, sure. Where'd you get that? The same thing, you know, goods or something on your body. Yeah, for sure. Actually, I have a, I got a tattoo 20 years ago. Tattoos are huge for that. Yeah. In the what Philippines. You, really? What was it? That was a Chinese it? symbol. It's, it's not even worth recounting. <laughs> you got a Chinese symbol in the Philippines? <laughs> it was 1990s. <laughs> that would make that. You should have gotten barbed wire. It was, before peak, it was before peak Chinese symbols. Dude, somebody in, in Thailand, uh, someone I met was going to get a, a was into tattoos, was going to get a bamboo tattoo where they like, like take a piece oh, yeah. of bamboo uh -huh. or whatever. And he asked for that. He learned the Thai words for bamboo tattoo. Uh -huh. um, and they're like, okay. And he thought that they have these like ancient like things to give them and then they like they draw on it before they do it and he just made a drawing of bamboo <laughs> and yeah. then the guy was like yeah. what no you know what fuck it that's good now too fuck give me a regular tattoo of bamboo to commemorate the time that i wanted to go to this unique thing and just didn't get it he should get a bamboo tattoo of like a tattooed needle on the other arm yeah <laughs> yeah bring, exactly bring it full yeah they go both ways right well, that's funny. Actually, you know, my tattoo, uh, it reminds me of who I was at that age, too. Oh, know? yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's not a, a place where anybody... <laughs> <laughs> it's not a place where anybody would see it, but I was a newbie, and I was, I was also very... Um, I, I sort of had this... I was so new as a traveler that I was very fraught with the existential stakes. You know, I wanted to have lived. Yeah. I, I wanted to remind myself to be present in the world and not and not um, let my youth slip. And you know, again, it's that overwrought young man type thing, which is dorky, I'm sure. But, but it also, it's sort of- You're more full of meaning. That's when you're more likely to commit suicide over a woman. You right. know, the younger yeah. you are, where you, everything has huge meaning. Yeah, yeah. You know? And yeah, I, I think there's something specific to young manhood. I, young people in general, women seem to be more, have more common sense when they're young. Um, but I think, like status is so important for young men and there's a time in your life where you feel like you have none, you know? None. And so you want to fake it or like live it. Yeah. Is anybody seeing me do this? Yeah. But then, then I think there's an extent to when you're younger that travel can imbue you with a sense of status. That if nothing else, you've been to interesting places and had interesting experiences and maybe even brought back interesting souvenirs that can speak to having lived, you know? And yeah. so even though I didn't get the tattoo with 
a mind to it being a souvenir. That's sort of what it is. And I have scars too. I, you know, um, I cut my head open when I was five. Um, I don't know if you and I have talked about this before. Like I was having a beer drinking contest with my cousin Clint. At five? Well, there was beer in, in a little mini fridge downstairs and the adults were upstairs. And it's sort of in the same exact same can as a pop or uh-huh. a, a soda, whatever you call it in your so oh, yeah, but what's this pop? Sorry, um, I forgot about that. And so it's like, well, this is like adult pop. And so we're drinking it and it tasted terrible. And so he's, my cousin stopped drinking it, but I was taught to finish what I started as a young kid. And so I finished <laughs> a beer and then we got in a pillow fight and I cut my head open because I exaggeratedly threw myself backwards and hit it on a table. And then years later, I shaved my head when I was, or gave myself a buzz cut when I was like 31. And it was... The scar was on the top of my head when I was five, and it was like on the side of my it head. Moved, was, it yeah. migrated? So my skull had stretched the scar down. Wow. So that's scars, cool. Memory of it. So we were like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, even that's just a memory of a memory. I didn't, I didn't put the yeah. two and two about the beer together until later, you know, that when I was a kid, it's just, I didn't know what having being buzzed was or anything like that. I don't even remember feeling buzzed. I just remember finishing I wonder how beer. much you got over a, a one beer that I young. Know. I don't know. There's also, I'm trying, I'm going through this, not problem, but like, my friend and I talk about this, where it's like, if you tell a story about something enough, you no longer even have a memory of it. You just remember telling the story. So you're like, is this true? And you're like, I don't know anymore. Right. I know, I don't remember saying I'm going to like change a detail, but like, I I don't, I just like, yeah, like I pictured it because of what I've told about it. I think that's neurologically accurate. Yeah. That memories are like muscles in a way, and that you to keep them strong, you have to re-remember them. And re-remembering, you you cut out inconvenient details. Um, yeah, which is why journaling helps. Going back and right. like, what was that guy's name? Oh yeah, there wasn't another guy there. Or or why photos? I, I talked photos in the book about sure. the distinction between photos and souvenirs because photos are more of a one-to-one relationship. You do talk about it, okay? Yeah, and I mean there's. Photos can be associational. You can see a, a photo of one thing and it can remind you of other things that aren't in the frame. Whereas souvenirs are entirely associational. And I think those, they call forth different meanings at different times. You know, that, that, that this, you know, teacup that you got in Russia 17 years ago may have reminded you of a, of a girl that you were sort of fixated on at the time and now you you're at a time in life where that's not a thing, yeah. you know, and now it reminds you actually of, of Russia, you know, that meanings can change. Uh, yeah. um, jumping back to what you're saying real quick, like, I'm not sure how, I, cu- I couldn't tell you how um, empirically accurate my drinking a beer, getting in a pillow fight and cutting my head open story is, because I didn't even, I was a teenager before I realized that the beer had probably influenced the, the pillow fight hijinks. And then who knows Yeah, you're a looper, of, maybe. The, of the blocking of how, like who knows? Maybe I maybe I drank the beer on a different time at my yeah. It might have even been like three days earlier or the last time yeah, you went. Yeah. It's like you. But for the but we but memory is narrative. Like a narrative takes out inconvenient hmm. um, details. That it, that that yeah. it's it's like a it's like a river that's going to flow down the easiest path. Um, one one thing I talk about in the book is when I go to the trade. I went to a trade uh, show, a souvenir yeah. trade show in Las Vegas. And I was interviewing people, and one weird thing in the 2016 Olympics is that the Rio organizing committee bought all these souvenir t-shirts and figurines and dolls of the mascot. But the, the beer cups were so cool, and they, each beer cup was for a different event. 
Nobody was buying souvenirs. They were just buying the $4. Instead of buying the $30 t-shirt, they were buying the $4 beer, drinking it, and keeping the cup. Mm-hmm. Because the cups, basically, the cups were too were cool. Yeah. yeah. And so you end up collecting a cup for every event in the Olympics. Um, and so that becomes a thing. Again, um, the way... I mean, I, I actually... I turned my house upside down looking for souvenirs while I was writing this book. You know what I didn't look in? My cup, my cup cabinet. Yeah, it's full of souvenirs yeah. too. <laughs> I have like an old mug from college that like it's like the reusable coffee mug that says save the environment. Remember like the save the environment oh, yeah. movement of the of the early nineties? Uh-huh. When that was their Vietnam. Right. <laughs> it was like, right. guys, we don't have big issues. Right. When when history disappeared, <laughs> yeah. when history stopped happening. Um, and I have all those baseball cups, I have Mardi Gras cups up there. That's funny. I turned my house upside down and didn't even look at my freaking cabinets, which are full yeah. of what are what are in essence souvenirs. Even and something my, you gotta steal. To get them, what? Like there's no way to buy those cups. You just have to like take them. shot glasses from bars in college. Like, oh oh I'm yeah. This. yeah, like you can't be like, can I give you guys ten bucks for this? They'll be yeah. like, no, I'm a bar back. I don't have power to sell our oh, stuff. Oh, they could though. They, that's yeah. A friend of mine did that once. Like, Ask them. Do you mind if I buy this? Well, it was just one of those dumbass. I, we keep coming back to how dumb young men are. I'm sorry yeah. to all the young men in my audience. I, I know that I myself was a dumb man, so I speak for myself <laughs> and not for the young men in my audience. But yeah, we went. I went like. I don't know how it was when you were first in college, but my friends and I, somebody's grandma had a house in Sisters, Oregon. So we drove over the mountains and we had this big keg party in Sisters, Oregon. And the difference between the enjoyability of the party versus the expectation was a chasm. We were so look, looking forward to it. And it was just this dumb, drunken debauch. <laughs> and then, then my friend, who will go unnamed, but you know who you are, um, the next day he decided to order a beer with breakfast in a frosty mug. And so he, he bought that mug. So for some reason, it was important to him that he, he, of course, I'm saying this is stupid in retrospect. I'm sure we, we enjoyed it at the time. So he decided to keep a mug. And again, he gave $10 to the bar back or the waitress or whatever, who, who were happy to unload, you know, whatever. Yeah, like, fine. Um, oh, right. It's not there. So he sell, would so. have a souvenir of some dumbass thing that he did when he was 20 years old. You know, if he still has it. I should ask him. I should ask him. Yeah, it was at Oktoberfest with my brother. And I was trying to leave with one of those big those big glass yeah, steins, yeah. you know? And um, first day, they were like, no way, there's bouncers like, stopping that. And I was like, fuck, how am I gonna get this? And my brother like, I don't know, man. Where was the Oktoberfest? Uh, Germany, you know? Okay, okay, gotcha. Yeah. And, um, and um, then there was a fight, and the bouncer went like, now, go, now. And then we like, we would go out, you know, they got bigger <laughs> things to deal with. Yeah. And um, we were out the door, and like, and then in the, where all the tents are, and then like out of even the grounds. And like, as we're exiting the whole grounds, um, some cop is like, hey, nope, nope. And I'm like, what do you mean? No, I'm almost I thought like, I already got it out. It's already mine. Right. I stole it. That's interesting. Only in Germany would the, would the yeah. police pay that much attention to And it. I started to be like, come on, man, be cool. And then I realized there was a joint in my other hand. And okay. I was like, well enough alone? <laughs> Let's go. That's funny. And that, that's actually a very German moment, I think. I, I think there'd be some places where people don't care. Right, yeah. I, I asked... Um, because I went to an Oktoberfest in Queens once. Uh-huh. Um, it's <laughs> yeah. a famous one. You know, if you know Queens, you probably know what it is. But they had like a trivia contest, and they're like, "Here's Stavropram and beer. Who can guess where it's from?" And like all these Queens people are like, "Germany." Like, <laughs> is it Germany? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, it's from the Czech Republic. So I got this <laughs> giant mug. Like I was the only oh, really? person who who realized that beer is also made in the Czech Republic, <laughs> and that actually Czech names are not German sounding. Um, it was one of those times when geography knowledge came in handy. Um, and then I, I actually have that at home. I, 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 um, 
I think I was living with a girlfriend in New York at the time, and so that that has made it to several places, and it's not a convenient it's not, size. Right. They're not mug. right. I yeah. I ended up stealing another one. I got one. Okay. I've okay. never used it. <laughs> you yeah. can't. Like, this, yeah. When you need like forty-eight ounces of beer, right. you just even if you have it at home, you're like, I'll leave it in the bottle. I'm not pouring this into a glass. You don't even even if you needed that much water, like if if it's a way to help yourself hydrate, just get a plastic yeah, cup exactly. instead of a, a mug that weighs like two pounds. Yeah. Or something. Those end up at thrift shops after oh, yeah. estate sales. Oh, totally, totally. Yeah, any thrift store. Yeah, I, there's a thrift store I go to a lot back in Kansas, and it's full of stuff like that. And actually, I have. Um, do you know New Orleans very well? A little, but not much. Oh, it's that. Oh, it's Pat O'Brien's. It's like the place yeah, right on Bourbon. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was there for a bachelor party once, and and somebody we had these Pat O'Brien's hurricanes, and some guy decided that hurricanes. we're going to keep all of our glasses, and so I. Went to great pain. I've never, I've literally never used it again. I have these Pat O'Brien's glasses. Um, and yeah, so it's weird. That's another place that I didn't check. I don't know why I didn't check my cabinets while I was writing the book. There's obviously there's plenty in my book, but that's a little, it's sort of like a wasteland of like glasses that seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah. Like if I'm having a cocktail at home, it's gonna be one of the glasses that are in the front, you know, that came with the bottle of Bullet, Bullet Bourbon 10 years ago. And like all that tourist stuff gets pushed further and further back into my Oh yeah, storage. and then you don't see it, it's behind the real glasses you actually use. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's weird too, like shot glasses were like such a college thing. And then like, I took some with me and I had them for like, the first like couple moves I had. And then I moved out of my place in LA that was like for 10 years. I had these and I was like, I don't do shots at home. <laughs> if I did, it would be like drink straight from the bottle or pour a little on a glass. Like what are we, why is this with me? Oh, it's another young man thing. I think yeah. actually shot glasses are huge. When I was huge tourist things. The, the, the vendors is that shot, um, they said the worst thing no you can ever do use is, is overthink souvenirs is that you can try to think of a fancy souvenir. People love shit with, with the, the destination's name on it, mm-hmm. you know? And so oh, right. shot glasses, keychains, bottle openers. It's like a card's bottle openers, And you know yeah. why they sell so many shot glasses? Well, I'll see if you can guess. Why? Do they sell shot? Why do shot glass souvenirs sell better than like pint glass souvenirs? Easier to travel. Easier to travel. Yeah. yeah. Even so you'd never use one it. One thing I never appreciated until I was at this vendor's convention is that everybody's like, yeah, it has to be small. It has to be cheap. If it's funny, it helps. If it has the name of the destination, it helps. And I'm thinking, this is kitsch. You know, this is kitschy uh, Chinese made stuff. And they're here exactly. We're not in the business of trying to reinvent souvenirs. We're trying to sell souvenirs. And so, oh, right. They're so, not art- artists about it. They're just making money. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there, are, there are artisanal souvenirs. But at the end of the day, if you're a buyer for the National Forest Service, you, you know that 70% of what you sell are for families who it's their first time in the national park. Yeah. And the kids want some goofy little stuffed animal thing. The, 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 the young people want shot glasses. Uh-huh. And, that, and then at the end of the day is that you can... You can think authenticity all you want, but at the end of the day, you, all that authentic stuff is going to be on the shelf at the end of the season. When you're going to plow through keychains, yeah, toenail clippers, you know, all toenail that small clippers. stuff you can, you can... Yeah, I almost got one of those in Yangon. I was like, oh, that would have been good. And then I settled on fridge magnets. Fridge magnets, yeah. I also just like having them build up on my fridge. Okay. You know, my friends, uh, Sam and Eric, get, get um, where they go, they get um, Christmas ornaments different places they go not country but just places okay yeah and then on christmas they put them they just add them to the tree and That's then great. so they have these memories attached to like you know yeah um when i taught at yale i bought my mom a, a yale christmas ornament. really but i think yeah. it's there uh for students you know that basically the parents can can have can advertise where their kid is at oh, school yeah. 
My my mom probably cares less about uh, Yale than just she's a Christmas tree nerd. Uh, she likes little ornaments. You went there. You taught there. I taught there. No, that's I didn't. Cool. I didn't go to Yale. That that that's my little authenticity story. Is that right? Stuck up. Um, I I only taught one class. I taught English one twenty. I, I love my students, and so oh, that's freshman too, right? It's 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 freshman, but it's also it's one of those classes. It's one of those famous classes. That's why they hire so many. They hire working writers to teach it. And it's one of those where you're basically expected to just put the students through the ringer. It's like a boot camp for writers. Um, and it's sort of a famous class. And so it was cool. I had no complaints about Yale. I mean, um, I, didn't, I didn't like living there in the winter. I'd rather oh. be traveling in a warm place. Yeah. But um, yeah, the students were, were smart and earnest. And um, you didn't know I taught at Yale for a while. I think I did. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I was sort of nerdy about that too. I bought a, I have a Yale coffee mug. Like I, I knew that one, it was an experience that I wouldn't have predicted when I was 17. You know, like yeah. there was, I didn't even consider going to Yale, but then I got to teach there when I was in my 40s. And so I actually have a few souvenirs from that experience. Uh, I went to the Yale-Harvard game once, and there's this sort of vintage Yale button that's about the size of a coffee saucer, like an, like an old I like Ike style button. And it's on my office wall now, you know, like they don't give you a certificate for teaching there. They don't? But, but now I, I can look at my office wall and it's like, yeah, I taught at, I taught at Yale for a couple of years. I brought some souvenirs, some rocks. You, you brought some souvenirs here? Yeah. With you now? Yeah. Well, bring those out. All right. Back Hold on. All right. So Ari is going across the, uh, the apartment here to get some souvenirs. All right. While Ari's off getting his souvenirs, I'm going to read an excerpt from my book about souvenirs. More Ari in a second. For now, here's chapter one of my book. At Paris C, a souvenir shop located at 52 Rue Mouffetard in Paris, Almost every item on offer has something to do with the Eiffel Tower. Here, in 270 square feet of cramped showroom space, with Edith Piaf tunes warbling in the background, one can buy Eiffel Tower t-shirts and Eiffel Tower snow globes, Eiffel Tower whiskey flasks and Eiffel Tower oven mitts, Eiffel Tower bottle openers and Eiffel Tower ashtrays. The music boxes here come with Eiffel Towers engraved on the outside, and berets come with Eiffel Towers silhouetted in sequins. For unexpected weather, Paris C sells Eiffel Tower-themed umbrellas, sun hats, and scarves. For amusement, it sells Eiffel Tower-embossed soccer balls, poker chips, and Rubik's Cubes. Several dozen types of Eiffel Tower miniatures are also on offer, from inch-high plastic keychains that cost half a euro, to bronze lawn ornaments that stand four and a half feet tall and sell for 900 euros each. The store also offers a fair selection of items that don't allude to the Eiffel Tower, like Mona Lisa shot glasses, plastic can-can dancer figurines, and ballpoint pins in the shape of baguettes, but for the most part, Eiffel Tower products dominate. The central irony here is that 52 Rue Mouffetard is not particularly close to the Eiffel Tower. One cannot glimpse the tower from any point along this cobblestone thoroughfare, and a pedestrian would need to walk west for one hour to reach the monument on foot. It is because of this seeming anomaly, not in spite of it, that Paris C feels like a fitting place to begin our investigation of souvenirs. In French, the word souvenir is commonly used as a verb and means to get back to myself or to remember. In English, souvenir is a noun, an object through which something, a place, a person, an experience is remembered. This English definition dates back to the 1700s, though it didn't come into widespread use until the late 19th century, about the same time mass-market travel gift shops first began to pop up in places like Paris. I've been teaching creative writing classes at the Paris American Academy each summer since 2002, 
and I often passed by Parisi on my way to or from school. Rue Mouftar, an, early, an Ernest Hemingway haunt back in the 1920s, is a lively pedestrian street full of atmospheric restaurants and cafes. Though popular with tourists during the summer months, it is not, by Paris standards, a major tourist area. Nonetheless, Parisi is one of two shops plying the souvenir trade along this short thoroughfare. Its competitor, Abjai Trouvé, located just seven storefronts away, also features an abundance of Eiffel Tower-themed trinkets. Both of these stores sit at the heart of the city's 5th arrondissement, a one-square-mile left-bank district that at the time of this writing is home to 33 distinct tourist market gift shops with names like Oshique Souvenir, Paris Smile Souvenirs, Paris Star Souvenirs, Rose for You, and Gift Paradise. More than a dozen 5th arrondissement newsstands also sell tourist knickknacks, as do museum shops in the Jardin des Plantes and the Museum of the Middle Ages. Add in the souvenir items on offer at the various antique stores, bookshops, jewelry boutiques, and art galleries, as well as the green box vendor stalls along the Seine, and one can scarcely walk three blocks in the 5th arrondissement without being presented with dozens of souvenir buying options. This is all the more remarkable for the fact that the 5th arrondissement isn't among the top five tourist districts in Paris. Not compared with the first, which is home to the Louvre and the Tuileries, the fourth, home to the Notre Dame and the Pompidou, the eighth, home to the Champs-Élysées and the Arc de Triomphe, or even the 18th, where Montmartre and Sacré-Cœur are. The seventh arrondissement features the Eiffel Tower itself, which attracts so many souvenir vendors that a 2011 attempt to evict unlicensed salespeople from the area required a deployment of riot control police. The following spring, French customs police busted the street vendors' Paris-based ringleaders, seizing 13 tons of unlicensed miniature Eiffel Towers in the process. When I first learned of this, 13 tons of contraband Eiffel Tower kitsch, I found it hard to believe that Paris-C, a shop three miles away in a much quieter part of the city, could stay in business. Eventually, curiosity got the best of me, and I introduced myself to the store's 59-year-old owner, Desiree Taib, who runs Paris-C with her son, Sebastian. Her shop, she told me, dates back to 1992, and she set it up with the help of her sister, who peddles similar merchandise just up the block at Objet Trouvé. Desiree has, in the past, dabbled with more traditional fare, such as handmade porcelain dolls and French peasant costumes, but ultimately tourists are more inclined to buy mass-produced bijouterie. We sell Eiffel Tower things, she told me, because people want Eiffel Tower things. While Paris is one of the most heavily touristed cities in the world, the market for travel souvenirs has also seeped into the planet's most desolate and remote corners, a fact I was reminded of during a recent journey to Namibia's skeleton coast in southwestern Africa. This desert-parched, rock-strewn stretch of Atlantic coastline south of the Angolan border has an end-of-the-earth feel. 16th-century Portuguese sailors called it the Gates of Hell, while Namibian bushmen called it the land God made in anger. Apart from a smattering of picturesque sand dunes and scientific research outposts, the only tourist draws here are the bleached whale bones and rotting shipwrecks that litter the coastline. Still, it is difficult to drive the length of the skeleton coast without spotting a few Damara tribesmen selling polished rocks along the roadside. Now, by African souvenir standards, polished rocks are something of a novelty. Visit any tourist town craft bazaar in southern Africa, in the Namibian coastal resort of Swakopmund, for example, or in Cape Town's sprawling Pan-African market, and the offerings are consistent to the point of being standardized. Much like Parisian gift shops focus on Eiffel Towers and Mona Lisa's, 
African souvenir market stalls carry some combination of hardwood serving bowls, safari animal figurines, tribal ceremony masks, beaded bracelets, engraved ostrich eggs, warthog tusk bottle openers, and hand-dyed batiks. Ask African market vendors why these particular items are for sale, and you'll get an answer similar to the one I got in Paris. Years of trial and error have shown that these objects, which evoke a romanticized, if fairly generic, vision of the African continent, are what tourists want. Curiously enough, market demand is also what has drawn Damara rock vendors to the forlorn highways of the Skeleton Coast. Historically, the Damara were among the earliest original inhabitants of what has now become Namibia, and their Kwekwe language features clicking sounds distinctive to the region. The arrival of powerful Bantu-speaking tribes and later German colonialists in the 19th century pushed the Damara out of their traditional hunting and grazing regions into a desolate mountainous area in the northwestern part of the country. Though water was scarce in this part of Namibia, the mountains yielded semi-precious stones, turquoise, amethyst, garnets, tiger's eye, tourmaline, that were prized by German and Afrikaans settlers. The stone trade proved so profitable that the Damara, who had typically lived as subsistence pastoralists, began to travel out of the mountains to sell rocks along Namibia's major roadways. As the country's tourist infrastructure grew over the course of the 20th century, the roadside rock trade grew with it. I learned all of this from Johannes, a 41-year-old Damara elder who hawks semi-precious stones on a beach near the Zyla shipwreck 35 miles north of Swakopmund. Though Johannes plies his trade more than 7,000 miles away from Paris, his no-nonsense pragmatism reminded me of Desiree Taib and, and Parichi. Shipwrecks are a major tourist attraction along the Skeleton Coast, so when the Zyla, an Angolan fishing boat, ran aground here in 2008, Johannes was one of a dozen Damara vendors who turned up to sell rocks to sightseers. The Damara worked the beach in teams of three, taking t turns as each new tourist car arrives. On a good day, a three-man team can split $50 worth of sales, though it's not uncommon to sell no stones at all when traffic tourist, is, tourist traffic is light. Johannes and his colleagues live on the beach near the Zyla full-time between November and February, returning in the off-season to their home villages where they spend time with their families, raise cattle, and dig for more rocks up in the mountains. When I asked Johannes what traditional Damara life was like before the stone trade, he told me that he wasn't sure, that for him, Damara tribal identity is inseparable from selling souvenirs. For as long as white people have been coming to Namibia, we have been selling them rocks, he said. My father sold rocks and my grandfather too. I grew up doing the same. To me, this is traditional Damara life. I should probably point out that the very definition of what constitutes a souvenir can be a slippery concept. Some people who buy, say, a chunk of rose quartz from Johannes on the Skeleton Coast might display it back home as a reminder of Namibia, while others might resell it at a profit without taking much interest in what it represents at a personal level. On that same token, many people collect objects, mementos, keepsakes, heirlooms, trophies, memorabilia, that have souvenir-like qualities while not being souvenirs in the literal sense. In the interest of simplicity, I'm going to focus on objects that are collected for personal reasons during the course of a journey. Academic researchers have pinpointed five different categories of souvenirs that people seek in their travels. The stones sold by Johannes and the other Damara vendors in Namibia are considered piece of the rock, that is, physical fragments of the travel destination or experience itself. This time-honored souvenir category encompasses everything from pebbles and seashells to ticket stubs and emptied wine bottles. Usually, this type of souvenir is found or kept at no extra cost, though as is the case with Namibian turquoise, Latvian amber, or chunks of the Berlin Wall, it is sometimes collected and sold by enterprising vendors. 
A second souvenir category, local products, includes everything from Uruguayan leatherwork to Mozambican piri-piri sauce to the Parisian fashion designs found in the boutiques along Rue Muftard. While these first two souvenir types predate the tourism industry, the final three souvenir categories encompass the mass market objects one finds in places like Paris. Pictorial images, which includes postcards and posters depicting local iconography and attractions. Markers, which includes t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other products branded to the location. And symbolic shorthand, which includes miniaturized Eiffel Towers and Notre Dames. Since these three types of souvenirs can be manufactured in bulk and shipped most anywhere within the globalized economy, they tend to represent just how abstracted the relationship between souvenir and place has become in the 21st century. In Paris, for example, Desiree has set out small signs indicating specific items that were made in France, but this only underscores the fact that a majority of the souvenirs sold here, and indeed in most of the gift shops in Paris, were manufactured in distant Chinese factories. Moreover, thanks to Desiree's tech-savvy son Sebastian, one need not even visit Paris to purchase these souvenirs, since the Paris website, SouvenirParis.com, features an online store that includes international shipping, a blog with virtual tours of the city, and a link to the store's Instagram account, at SouvenirParis, which boasts more than 10,000 followers from around the world. When one ponders the prospect of going online and ordering a Guangzhou-made miniature Eiffel Tower and having it shipped from Paris to Dubuque without the need to set foot in France, it's tempting to write off the souvenir ritual as an exercise in postmodern absurdity. Yet while each Eiffel Tower tchotchke displayed on the shelves of Paris enters the store with a generic commercial value, it exits the store as part of an individualized narrative, even when Sebastian wraps it up and mails it to a place like Iowa. Like all souvenirs, the object's personal meaning gains potency as it moves away from the place that imbues it with objective meaning. In a sense, souvenirs are a metaphor for how lived experience can endow most any object with personal significance. To understand how even mass-produced kitsch can become rich with meaning to the traveler who collects it, we must first hearken back to the earliest recorded journeys, when travel was considered difficult, and the objects one collected on a journey were considered sacred. All right, that was chapter one of my book, Souvenir. Now back to Ari sharing his own travel souvenirs. So I, um, Ari is proving how bad of an interview. I'm so bad at keeping this on topic that I didn't even realize that Ari, <laughs> that Ari brought souvenirs. I thought it might work with what you're trying to talk about. This book is out now, right? Yeah, it's, okay. it's, it's officially out. My release party, actually my release party will be the day before this podcast comes out. So there's no point in talking about it Okay. here in New York. Uh, yeah, so Ari is spreading some, before we talk about these, do you have like a prize souvenir at home? Like, like the, the king of souvenirs that you display back home? Oh, no, I don't. This is just a little shelf that I have that I put mm -hmm. a rock on and then I just put another one. Okay. No, I don't have like display cases for stuff. Okay. Um, actually I don't really have it either, but maybe my, my Mekong boat propeller. The hang um, up on a wall? Yeah, it's it's with my like Burmese marionette heads. Oh, really? Um, and and some some of my masks. I didn't throw the masks away. I stopped collecting them, but they still they still look good in my office. Uh, and so actually, people. Yeah, if they look good, then it's like I would put that up even when I found it at a yard sale here. Yeah. You know, but then when you actually have meaning on top of it, it's just like it's a second layer. It's cool. Exactly. Yeah. 
I think it's hard to rank your souvenirs. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, we, we've been talking for an hour and 43 minutes, and nice. Ari finally realized that. <laughs> so maybe this will, this will be, I'll edit this so this is the start of the souvenir. So Ari Shapir here in Noho, Manhattan, has brought a handful of souvenirs. And so I'm just going to just describe them since this is a podcast. Yeah. Do these two things count? No, these are okay, so things that fell off. A couple of sunflower seed looking yeah. little bits of ephemera. Uh, and so we have sort of a concrete uh gray rock it might be a rock or it might be a piece of concrete we'll find out in a second we have what looks like a hoof or a piece of wood actually it's a piece of wood yeah i think and then there's maybe a river stone or a sea stone that's sort of yellowish and small we have a shell or a mollusk of some sort and then we have sort of a red rock so we have one two three four five souvenirs that ari has brought so ari what yeah first of all when i went i was like oh let me get some of these and then i these are the ones i remember and there was two other stones in there that i'm like i know I have no memory of Didn't where know, I got where the hell Yeah, was one was like from. gems with like stuff sticking up. And I'm like, I should remember this, but I don't. <laughs> and are they all collected or did you buy? You no, buy all collected. Okay. All collected. All right. Yeah. And then I used to do this thing where I find if somebody left something in their TSA basket. Okay. I like a like a pen or a pin, you know, uh -huh. I'd be like, no, I'm not letting this get thrown out. We're continuing this life. Just because these fucking bitches made, made, made us fucking take stuff out. Someone right. lost this on purpose because these assholes. Right. I'm like, yeah. I'm using, I'm wearing it. Interesting. Yeah, and, and that that's an interesting way of, of re-entering objects into the world's conversation. You know. Yeah. Um, of uh, sort of again anthropomorphizing this object so you can you're giving it second life. Uh -huh. It's not going to yeah. end up in the TSA garbage. Yeah. Uh, um, this concrete one was from a so I got and one that I'm probably going to throw out. I got I went to the Blue Lagoon in in, in, uh, in Iceland. Reykjavik. Yeah, yeah. In Iceland, with my friend who's from there. Uh huh. Um, and he went, but then he was telling me about it, how they kind of like, re, like moved it. And now it's not fully volcanically heated. Oh, they like okay. have like runoff from a plant and they just put that in the water. Huh. Clean, but like, it's just not as authentic. But it was still pretty cool. And then he took me to the north and we went to this like hidden hot spring. And he was like, I remember being around here somewhere. We got to like walk over, like we walked through like a sheep meadow and then like jump a fence. And then we walked over this like, we had to jump over this like crevasse. And then like keep walking, he goes it's somewhere around here. And then he said, he said it's easier to find in the winter because like steam will come up oh, right, out yeah. of the ground. And then there's just this rope where locals use. We went down there and just spent like two hours That's awesome. completely by ourselves. And is this from that one? This is from that one. Okay. Yeah, this is where I actually injured my, my hand too. And so it was just like, you got that? I was like, yep, let's go in the pocket. This is a similar thing when I was looking for the flowing lava on the big island in Hawaii. It had yeah. rained that morning and it was a 14 mile round trip. And I just kept looking at the steam because it, it had to, rained to and the steam was there. coming up. Yeah. And the great thing about that adventure um, is that the they don't know where the lava is going to be flowing from day to day. They don't know. Oh, really? And so you have to find it. And, and the steam helped. And so I hiked seven miles in, went halfway up this little hill, and then I found this flowing lava. It actually blew my mind. I've been traveling for a long time, and this is one of my favorite travel experiences ever because you're, like, tired. You've walked in. And I can see sort of a, a correlate there. It's one thing to sit in the Blue Lagoon, pay your 50 bucks. Yeah. But another thing to hike fences with your Icelandic mm -hmm. buddy and then suddenly you're in this place. So that yeah. so you got that from. So is this concrete or is this just a concrete? I think it's rock? just like yeah. I think it's just concrete rock. I don't really get it. But it like, my my dad's a science teacher, and so I think this is called a concretion. Really? Uh, where different kinds of rock are compressed together by the earth. Yeah, it's constantly like moving and shifting there. Sometimes yeah. they'll have like fissures. So they had like. Uh, this could be volcanic, actually. Oh, well, it's all, the whole yeah, island is that's volcano. true. Yeah, so, so it's Iceland. So I, I'm wrong. This isn't a concretion. It looks like concrete, but I think it's, it's actually oh, a piece of yeah, lava. Oh, yeah, then it's for sure that's what it yeah. is. I mean, the whole 
island is just I think the island lava. is too young to have created enough river rock to have returned into history and been smashed again. Like, didn't it erupt yeah. out of the ocean? Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, moss grew over it, and then, like, some soil grew on top of that. But it's, like, it's, I think right. it's but I think just... you need millions and millions of years to actually have had a place, had rivers long enough, create river rocks, and then have those be buried in mud and turn into different kinds of rocks. Oh. This is the oh. geology episode of Deviated Rock Thoughts. <laughs> Thoughts talks out of his ass about how rocks work. So that's great. That's, that's awesome. That's almost, in a way, that's almost like a, a, a trophy. You know, it's yeah. so much better than a ticket from the Blue Lagoon. Mm-hmm. Right, because we went in there, and it was cool, and I got a stone from that, which is like, oh, cool. You know, but then, like, it became less relevant when I got this, like, way more interesting, similar experience. Yeah. You know? And this flat one was actually from a hot spring in... Thailand and Myanmar, I know it's with friends that I saw in both places. Hmm. So this is a little, also about the size of a quarter, but oblong, yellow piece of river rock. Where was that? So what happened in the hot spring? What do you think of when you think of this? It was me, my friend Derek Watson, who's from Seattle, and Ryan Cater, who's from uh, Newcastle. Okay. Um, Newcastle, England, Newcastle? Mm-hmm. I, be- I think it was Thailand, because we met up again. We like had our, it was our first like crew. Okay. But one of my first crews, uh-huh. you know, and then it's like, we're just going to go together. And then they dr- drop off, you add new people to the crew. Right. You know? Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. Common travel ritual. Yeah. Yeah. Rotating Pretty crew. fun part of it. And, I have um, good friends that were crew, that were crew alternates, you know. Just came in later. And had well, to, you like, meet a friend someplace, and then their friend shows up, and then pretty soon they're your friend too. Yeah, thing. exactly. It's like, they're like, you know, Bill was like, well, Tom and I had this fucking great 10 days in, on the Mekong. Right. And we had this great 10 days out wherever. And then pretty soon it's 10 years later and they're still your buddy. Mm-hmm. I have a, a lot of my adult friends are those ki- types of people. Wow. Like you have your school friends, but then you have these travel friends that, that maybe you met through somebody else or accidentally or they just happen to be at the hostel and then pretty soon you're still buddies. Anyway. Yeah, at least a shared experience. Yeah. I, that's something I come back to a lot is just how often you can create friendships as a traveler in a way that you were when you were 20 or something. You yeah. Because you're experiencing all this new stuff together with these people. So this is sort of, this is from your crew experience. I think it's Northern Thailand. I think it's Northern Thailand because we met up again and was like, hey, I ended up not going to Laos. If you guys are going to Thailand, let's all meet up. Right. And I did and it was like fucking, it was great. And I think, so we went on this long, long hike uh, and on bikes. Okay. And then we had to get off our bikes and hike. So we found, you know, you hear about like there's a hot spring that's cool. Uh And so we went to try to find it. And it was like all day to get there. First we went the wrong way. And then we finally like, saw where it was it's along this river it's freezing cold you had to like take off your shoes and crowd across to go to this hot spring and it was just i mean it was like a foot deep and warm yeah. and that was it and we just sat there nice. feeling disappointed <laughs> for fucking like 30 minutes so this is a souvenir of disappointment yeah for sure <laughs> it was just like and it was just fun being there with the friends yeah but like and then other people like locals came just washed their clothes and we're like should we be getting out of here yeah like this is weird you guys are doing your laundry in this funny yeah i haven't thought about it since then i just grabbed but you felt compelled i mean it's a good looking rock and maybe Mm -hmm. it would when it's wet it's probably brighter you know yeah maybe i've done that before i've picked up like a a, a sea stone it's like oh this brilliant purple sea stone and then i take it out of my pocket an hour later it's gray you know um and you can't like constantly re-wet your stones at home (laughs) so (laughs) you're throwing those ones away yeah um this one is from the grand canyon so this is actually a grand canyon colored rock yeah about golf ball size, but not as much mass. Yeah, my friend and I hiked down um, 
we were in Phoenix and then we're all like, let's go to the Grand Canyon. And we did on the way to, instead of going to New Orleans a couple of days early, two friends, like oldest friends from high from comedy, Steve Simone and Steve Renazizi. And we went, Simone quit halfway down this hike. He was like, halfway you guys, down. Which, we went was down. Was it Bright Angel? Did you go down the Bright, Bright Angel Trail? <sighs> South Rim? It was South Rim. Okay. It might've been Bright Angel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We didn't get all the way down. Okay. Um, we, we, we hiked down a few hours. And then he quit an hour in. He was like, I'll be here, you guys, okay. enjoying the scenery. Okay, right. And then we kept going, then we went off. Um, and then with all these red rocks, and we just sat there and talked about, you know, his life and, you know, and my life and how like, he's married with children and I'm very not. Uh-huh. And just how, you know, it was just a good friendship moment. Being alone in this amazing place that, that comedy sort of brought us to, because we were both in hmm. Phoenix for the same reason, for stand-up, for right. some festival. And it was like, we're doing pretty good. And it was just like a fun talk and then it was like as we went off further to piss yeah i saw this rock it was like i was looking for rocks the whole way and i was like this was like very specifically colored these red rocks and i was like yeah that's one it's interesting that we're, th- we're three objects into five objects and they're all they're all sort of people oriented none of them are loner finds uh-huh. right none of them were that you were wandering down a beach thinking about your aloneness in the universe and you picked up a rock yeah like this is your buddy in iceland who took you to the awesome hot springs the, this yeah. one is your 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 bros and your, you know your travel posse. In, yeah, that is interesting. In Thailand, and then this is your comedian friend in the Grand Canyon. Yeah, and and it sounds like there's some intentionality that you were literally looking for rocks while you were there. So yeah, as it was done, because then I've already started because this was after I've gotten all these four, mm-hmm. um, and it was like now I'm in the mode of like finding a rock. I'm, I only do this fridge magnets for countries, so I'm like I'm right. not getting a Grand Canyon fridge magnet. Right. And then it's like, this will be a good thing to get. It just keeps you going. It keeps you like moving and looking at your surroundings. Like, well, this would be a good small one. I'm like, nah. No, actually, it's a way of paying attention. Although, it, interestingly, it, it literally looks like the Grand Canyon, but it also reminds yeah, you sort of, of, of your friend, yeah. of the friend, your, your comedy yeah. friend. We sat there for like 15 minutes just talking, yeah. drinking water, and just like, yeah, what a great fucking trip that was. I think that's another thing about travel is that you, it gives you moments like that. You're, mm-hmm. you're out of your routine, you know, and then you can sort of strive to earn a moment. You're on the big hike, you're sitting there, and then suddenly you're having a conversation you'd never have otherwise, you know? Yeah. So, this was on Lombok in Indonesia. So this is a piece of wood. Yeah. At first I thought it was a horse's hoof or something, but it's just a chunk. It looks like it's been macheted off of a tree. Yeah. I went to this surf area, Uh um, took a scooter, which is one of the best parts about Asia or probably other places too. Like a scooter taxi? Or you rented a scooter? No, rent a scooter. Uh Um, They get more expensive in Indonesia, especially the further east you go. Hmm. Um, So these ended up being like, I mean... More expensive, probably like fifteen bucks a day. Okay, <laughs> you know right, what I mean? It's yeah. like it's really nothing still. Yeah. But um, um, and I went out to the surf spot by myself. I'd taken a lesson the day before, and I just went. It's a long, beautiful drive along the coast and up into mountains and back down again, and then surf for a while, and then came back, and then um, it had rained, and this giant tree had fallen in the in the uh, in the way of your scooter. Yeah, and okay. there's no getting around it, and uh-huh. there was already three scooters like waiting and there's just no getting around it huh. there's a big drop off and the trees like with the branches are massive and people try to pull it and there's just no way and then everyone just started chipping in huh. uh, they had to get some people from the city or from the government to come in there and they were chainsawing it and then other people were hatcheting it and everyone just sort of like like helped that's the great thing about those isolated parts of asia is that either you help or or it doesn't happen uh-huh. you know? either either you you can expedite. I've, I've seen like, um, uh, yeah, like 
little landslide things in the, in the road in India and the bus empties out and everybody starts pushing rocks. You got it. Otherwise yeah. you were not leaving. Yeah. Here there's like, fuck, will someone do this? And it's yeah. like, you, you will do it. <laughs> My parents didn't understand that that was imbued in me when we went to, uh, is that the wrong word? We went to um, Costa Rica and somebody couldn't start their car in front of us and we uh -huh. see somebody get out and start pushing and I was like, hey, hang on guys. And I just went out and started helping to push yeah, yeah. until it got around the corner and they jumped back in. They're like, what was that? I'm like, I don't know, the guy couldn't move. You just do it. <laughs> It, it's funny, I, a funny New York story from when I first started coming here. I was hanging out with some travel buddies up, up in sort of midtown Chelsea area. And somebody's, like a garbage fire started down in like a brownstone stairwell or something. Yeah. And so then like 100 New Yorkers are calling the fire department. And me and my travel buddies are like going to the restaurant, getting Get ice, water. getting yeah. buckets of water. And, um, and we put out the fire in a way that I think that you become very hands-on after a while overseas. And so, so there's like hundreds of New Yorkers just waiting for the fire department. But it's like, it's like it's garbage on fire. You know, we can put this out. And so the funny thing is my, my friend Dan, who's from, uh, uh, from Arizona and had just been in the Peace Corps and is a very alpha type person, is that he, would just, like, he was organizing a bucket brigade at a Chinese market and people were just like, oh, well, here's the guy in charge. Like in New York, nobody steps up. And so he was the one who stepped up. And so there was sort of an official unofficialness to him. And they put out the fire. Wow, yeah. So it's, it's a similar thing. A, a tree falls across your path. And, and you just do it. Yeah. And everyone's hatching it. And you get the pieces that were like still giant, but big enough where two people can sort of like carry it to the side of the road and throw it off this little ravine. Right. Um, and get, just get it out of the way. That's a fun travel memory too, because you've done something useful. You know, uh -huh. you're not just this consumer riding his rental motorcycle. Yeah. But you're like you, certainly you you could have gone through after you moved half the tree, but you stuck around to clear the road, right? We cleared it almost all the way, and yeah. then as soon as it was like open enough, everyone, locals especially, were just like, "See ya, we're, we can go right. now." Right. This wasn't a moment for us. This is just an annoyance. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know. Right. Some probably something happens quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So what what inspired you to pick up this wood? I just chip? saw this small piece, and it was yeah. sort of the same thing, where it's like. This is like, you know, it's associated with a memory. I think I dumped another piece of a rock mm -hmm. or another shell. Actually, no, there was a shell that I ended up bringing back to my mom. Just okay. more, more like this, but like it looks like a mollusk is in there, but just like sort of really pretty. And I just gave it to her. I think this is like the opposite of the gift shop souvenir. And not to yeah. knock a gift shop souvenir, but it's like, okay, so I'm in Bali. Yeah. Here's the gift shop. Um, I'm going to get the prescribed thing. You know, I'm going to get the keychain or the magnet or the little cultural carving. But then this is something that you could never have predicted, right? Uh -uh. It's a souvenir of the travel experience that found It doesn't you. read like Indonesia or like Lombok oh, Island no, in, in particular? If you would have made me guess where this is from, I never would have guessed. Yeah. I mean, there's not, this, could be from, this could be from Central Park. Yeah. You know? And if I did that with a, let's say I was with a woman that I was, had, had a fling with, and so I'm like, I could see like carving our names in it or something and just huh. having that, you know? Huh. But like, yeah. it wasn't, it was just me alone. Yeah, so actually this is the first of the five we've talked about four now, and this is yeah. the first one where you had a solitary experience. Yeah. Although it was solitary, but surrounded Still by local people. people. Yeah. yeah, have you ever heard of um, this play, this immersive play here called Sleep No More? No. Uh -uh. Okay, it's a, oh. a version of, I think, not it, It's immersive theater. Uh -huh. They okay. rent out the, some hotel, somewhere, I forget where we are. No, somewhere near here though. But, um, and they do either Hamlet or... One of those Shakespearean plays, I wasn't Othello, and it's all, there's no dialogue, and it's just five floors, and you just go through, and these people are quiet, and you all wear masks, so like, you're like, not in it, and the, okay. the actors are all in it, huh. and they have these weird like, act-outs, and like, you like, run after them and follow them, it's pretty cool, and then every once in a while, uh, one of them will like, grab your hand and, say, and like, lead you, and then it's like, you've been chosen, and they lead you into a room, 
And one of them, like this lady was like, started telling me, like she made me a cup of tea, she started telling me about her kid that died. Hmm. And it's just all part of it, but they don't really talk except in those moments and they pull you in. And then everyone else, all the other seven or eight people that are following this guy, it's like, oh, fucking jealous. Like you got one of these Right, you're the moments. chosen. Yeah. The moment chose you. Uh, yeah. You. Um, I went with a girl and she, she, uh, she got like at this bar that was set up, like everybody left and it's like, come have a drink. And then like made her like drinks and like tell her about this other thing. And it was this moment of like pulling you in. And I feel like meeting like a really foreign person and like experiencing things like that is like that thing where it's like, hey, you're now away from the fucking worn trail and like here, here's a legit real experience. It's interesting. It's like you're using immersive theater as a metaphor, but it's it's the original immersive theater. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're not you're not yeah, you're not reproducing not it. It's somebody whose role is, is to serve you tea and talk about their hell, but yeah. someone who actually is invited you to do that. So that's that's funny that you can you can uh, pay for the experience in New York, and it's awesome. Yeah. You feel chosen in, in certain moments, but I think travel offers that opportunity all the time if you can find uh, the right moments. Like you know. Yeah. Your bus breaks down. All of these things that seem like inconveniences, I think, open the the window. You know, open the door to the immersive theater aspect of travel. Possibly, like, what do we need? What's what's the story? Yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, and then you just end up like, yeah, being on a bus with somebody and like see like you're wearing a soccer jersey and then like you, then you share like a love of like some like you know English soccer league. Oh, ties love oh uh, man Man United and and yeah. uh, Liverpool. I think really. Yeah. Oh, they they love those 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 teams. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Oh, it's so great. And you have a conversation, then you find out what they even know about. Or like, somebody asked me in, in uh, on Flores Island about, I was renting a scooter and we were just fucking around. I was like, come on, man. The guy down the street said it was $5 less. He goes, which guy? No way. And I was like, all right, I'm lying. You know how Jews are. He's like, no, what's a Jew? I'm like, oh, Jew's like, what do you mean? And he was like, what's, what is that? I was like, it's a religion. He's like, really? And I was like, Oh yeah, he goes, from where? I'm like, you know, Israel. I mean, I've heard of that. I was, that's the. So is Flores a Christian island, or was it a? Flores is Christian. Game? Yeah. Flores is where it starts getting real Christian. The right. further east you get, the more Christian it gets. And yeah, but they were just like, this guy had never heard of it, and I was like, wow, really? Interesting. Not upset, but just interested. Of like, I guess that's the norm. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. I've um. You you talk about soccer jerseys. I've. Those are for sale all over Thailand. All over. It would be interesting. That would be a weird souvenir to have your man you uh, uniform to get from Thailand. I actually bought a, a Harley Davidson t-shirt for a friend that had the Thai script uh-huh. instead of the oh, English really? letters on it. He, he loved that. He was, I mean, that was... That we was went looking once because my friend Ryan, he got me more into soccer. He was like, you need a team. Yeah. He, was, he, he was checking the standings every day, multiple times a day. Yeah. We saw in Myanmar and Sean State, we were like found a place that had the game he wanted to watch on. In Sean State? Yeah, and it was, I mean, no other white people. We weren't, that's the place we were just not supposed to be. But right. we like found a place, had some tea, uh-huh. you know, and just like watch, probably a beer, and just watched that. It was fucking cool as shit. He was way into it. We gambled on what the final score was gonna be, because me and Ryan didn't, I mean, me and uh, Derek didn't really care. But right. she just got me into it. And then we were like, what's your team? And I was like, I don't know. He goes, you should be a Tottenham Hotspurs fan. And I was like, why? He goes, because they're called the Yid Army. That's okay. her nickname. So I guess there's a lot of Jews there. I'm like, fuck yeah, I'm in. There you so go. So then you go looking for like a Tottenham Hotspurs jersey in fucking uh-huh. Chiang Mai. Yeah. You know, and it's like, they're there. They just don't have my size. Yeah. Now there's a certain way of cultural thinking that says, oh, well, that's cultural de- degradation. But I guarantee you, you can have more conversations with Thai people wearing a Tottenham Hotspurs uh, jersey or Man U jersey yeah. than you would wearing 
whatever bullshit Sean fabric, you know, or, yeah. or ethnic, authentic clothing you bought because it gives you something to talk about, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and it's actually, there's something curiously authentically Thai about buying a Man U or Tottenham Hotspur's jersey in a place where people give a shit about it even though it's a continent away. And they you still know? care. Yeah. I was in China. My, this is my first, like, real trip. But it was for... It was for comedy but it was 17 days in China and that's what got me like oh I gotta see the world right um, but it was World Cup and 4am because you know the time zone difference is huge the bars would fill up and China's not even in the World Cup at the time but people were Chinese people were watching Chinese but also expats and like right. every it was just like they just fill up to watch the sport that they all liked yeah you know I guess it's like watching the Winter Olympics in cheering for another Norwegian medal, you know, yeah, even if yeah. you don't have a dog in the fight. Yeah, you know, exactly. There's something fun Somewhere about international us. competition. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's your, what's your last shell here? So okay. So I was in... Do you know what kind of shell it is? It's some sort of... Some lived in it. Sea yeah. shell. Yeah, sort of here the ocean. And I had one similar to that from one that I got on a sort of a private beach in Bali. We hung out with this, these two girls and like this guy from Jakarta. Yeah, and I'm going to see if you can hear the ocean through the mic. <laughs> I don't think so. Probably not. It must be the human ear. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's like, you hear the ocean? I'm like, there's definitely not. It's not in there, but I like the idea. Um, and I met this guy who lived in Jakarta. He used to work at Facebook. Uh-huh. And... American guy? No. He Indonesian just, guy? Indonesian. Uh-huh. Um, but he met this girl. That's why I was, like, with all of them. And he just had money. He just had rich. And I was saying how the things I want to do, and one of the things was like, uh, East Timor was always in my head, and I don't know where else to go. And he was like, well, you're, and I was going to go to the Philippines. And he was like, well, you're really close to, to uh, Komodo and like places like that. Like, why don't you go there? I was like, oh, yeah. Am I really that close? He goes, yeah. Which are other parts of uh, Indonesia. You can just, yeah. you can island hop down Flores. 17,000 islands. Yeah. One less now, because their president sold one off to the Chinese. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I would impress people like that. I forgot the exact number now, but they were like, tell them about Indonesia, I'm like, 17,147. They're like, what? How did you know that? <laughs> like, I just know. Indonesians would say this or, or, um, or just... They were all taught that in school, how many okay. islands they had okay. in Indonesia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's, that's cool. Yeah. And then they were all like, one less, and they fucking hated Jacoby, their guy, their, their leader. Oh, so yeah. we like, they were like, Trump, I was like, yeah, what about Jacoby? I just heard. I'm that's like, funny. yeah, he's a jick. And I was like, yeah. Um, so, anyway, yeah. so... I was like, yeah, I kind of want to go to East Timor, but like my uncle, not my uncle, my half-brother was in the, was captain of the army, was like, don't. Look at the travel advisor. He's like, don't. And this guy was like, that's bullshit. That's only because they won't do trade with America. That thing all got solved because it used to be Indonesian was East Timor and they got their independence 15, right. almost 16 years ago now. Um, and he was like, it's fine. And then it was like, oh, I'm going then. But my uncle, when I talked to him, I was saying like, maybe I'll go. Before I went on the whole trip, he was like, don't go. If you have to, go to Dili. Don't go out at night and do not go any further east than Dili, the capital. And he knew this just because of some sort of... He's a traveler. He gets his feet dirty, his hands dirty. He eats street food. And was there and like... validity to this? Yes. Concern? There was a civil war that followed the independence war. Okay. The two big political parties. Right. You know, when people have bloodlust, they don't know where to put it. Um, right. And then in 2006, um, maybe nine. Maybe 2009. That just got solved. It got like quelched. Uh, Senana Guzmao and, and the other leader just like made peace. And then they made it illegal to even say at a bar like, oh, this guy's from the fucking north. 
you know? Hmm. Like, don't, you're going to jail if people try you, like, saying diversive shit like that, divisive huh. shit. So within this tiny little half island, there was a division, a north-south division within the... It was, it was east and west, actually. Okay. But when I say east, east Timor and west-east Timor, people are like, which one is it? It's like, there's <laughs> right. west Timor and there's west-east Timor. Um, right. Uh, and it was party-based, and there was overlap, and they would, they would fucking kill each other. Huh. Um, and that's what he was talking about. But they just travel advisor hadn't changed. Right. And when he put that in my head of like, don't go, I was like, okay. And I was nervous as shit there because of that. I mean, you do some research to try to live intelligently, mm-hmm. you know? And when they tell you Myanmar is completely safe, like that's all the writing. So you're like, I can trust that. Shanghai is completely safe. Like, well, I can trust, it's down in writing. But the writing for East Timor is it is not safe, right. you know? But then you get there, and I talked to some people in Indonesia who were like, oh yeah, I've been there. And there's no tourism really. There's just like, Peace Corps people and like agriculture people, but like there's no there's no tours, there's nothing set up. And so you go from spot to spot and find lodging, you figure out the tattoo words for like place to sleep. And um, I had met some people kind of going south and then going north, and I'm like, I'm taking the scooter all the way around. And I just kept going to BC and like all these other places. And there's this island called Jocko Island, which is all it's a nature preserve. And okay. it's on the easternmost part of East Timor. Um, and it was like a four-day trek to get there. And the roads were destroyed by the Indonesians before they left. So every time I'd fill up for gas, people were like, what, you can't get anywhere you're going on this thing. Like, you need a legit big motorcycle. Hmm. And I was like, well, this is all I got. And I'm already on the way. I'm not turning around. What are you going to tell you? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and it was horrible. But the last few, um, like last couple miles is on like you can't get there on anything other than a, like a giant tractor so did you park your motorcycle and walk yeah there's a uh, a series of i don't know if it's a name of hotel or or a, a couple hotels called something i stayed there took my bike down to the beginning of this path um i had a different bike than i traveled with the first time down and then back up um this guy who was staying at my hostel had rented my bike. I passed him on this road. His bike was shredded. Both tires okay. were shredded. And I was like, oh, this is why wow. they say don't use bikes on this. Right. Um, and uh, I just kept, it was like a two, three hour walk down, maybe a two hour walk down, maybe three hour walk back up afterwards. But you get to the end and there's just this fishing village and you pay a guy 10 bucks. They use American money. Uh-huh. Um, to take to the you island. across to Jocko, and okay. they sort of like mime out, like, when do you want me to pick you up? Mm-hmm. So it was like, give me four or five hours, whatever it was, and I walked through, like, trudged through the fucking jungle, don't really know what's there, but you're by yourself, and then you come across the other end, and it feels like the end of the world, and it was just like, you get there, and I remember, like, as I'm walking the last few, like, steps down, like, I've seen, like, the village is, like, down below me, remembering my half-brother going like, don't go any further east than Dili. And I'm going to the furthest east part, and it's all safe. And it's like, I've earned it, you know? And I went through the end, and I was just on this beach by myself. There's no one even threatening to be there. Um, and I was like, I took my shirt off, and then I fucking, I took my pants off. I was just naked for a while. <laughs> I took a shit in the water. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I was just there for like a while. And I saw this rock, and I was like, "This is a shell." The shell, yeah, uh-huh. the shell. And I was like, "Yeah, I feel like more than anything, like I've earned this one. Like I got to the end of the fucking world." This has been.
Deviate with Rolf Potts, more about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Ari's upcoming comedy events, as well as my new book about travel souvenirs, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Music is by Cedar Van Tassel. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Thank you.